Greetings, my friends and allies. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been quite a while since I've had a live guest on. Yes, it has. And today we're going to change all that. We're going to change the course of space and time with my friend, Jeffrey Notkin. If you don't know who Jeffrey Notkin is, well, then shame on you. No, no shaming here. No, just kidding. He is a super sweet person, a wonderful man. And to, to look at his, his life and what he has done is truly remarkable. Your best bet to take a deep dive into the world of Jeff Notkin is to scour his Wikipedia page. And also in my show notes, all the amazing links from his life his life links. And I will tell you a few of those things. He was on an award-winning television show, Meteorite Men, where he journeyed around the globe hunting meteorites. He was president of the National Space Society. He grew up and is best friends with Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite graphic novel authors. He grew up in England in the first days of punk rock and saw every band that I wish I had gotten to see back then. Um, I'm jealous. And, and then in New York in the very early eighties playing in punk bands. Um, again, just seeing all these bands that I wish I had seen back then, um, studied under Will Eisner, the father of graphic novels and also studied with Art Spiegelman, the creator of, Mouse, another extremely famous graphic novel, and also who was the creator of Garbage Pail Kids. And Jeff Notkin, one of my favorite facts, is Deaf Jeff, the Garbage Pail Kid. So I'm literally talking to a Garbage Pail Kid on the show, which is phenomenal. Oh, and our birthdays are one day apart. His birthday's February 1st and mine's February 2nd. So we have our birthdays coming up, which is nice. <laughs> I can't wait to get into it. So let's, uh, let's buckle up, keep the buckles loose so you can get up and move around. And, um, but not if you're driving, don't get up and move around. If you're driving your car, just if you're at home, but I guess that wouldn't make much sense. So let's just, uh, get into it. How about that? Shall we? Oh, yeah. There it is. It is in progress. It's a work in progress. Life is progress. (laughs) We are progress, Mr. Jeff Notkin. Quite right, too. (laughs) Oh, it's so nice. We were just chatting a little here before we, I clicked the the, uh, permanent uh, you know, permanent Sharpie marker to on the, <laughs> on the, on the record here. And, um, it's just so nice to catch up cause I haven't, I haven't talked to you in so long. And, um, and this is just like, what a treat here getting to spend this, uh, it's Sunday morning, you know, a nice little like cold wintry Sunday morning. With it you. is indeed. Well, I, I'd like to, uh, 
comment on that and and yeah. agree with what you said that uh <laughs> it's really nice to see you it's really nice to hear your voice i i'm a big fan of you and your work and it, it's it's fantastic when you meet someone in film or tv land you're working on a project together and you become actual friends and yeah. in my experience it's a pretty tiny percentage i meet loads of nice people and you go oh, how yeah, cool people got to work so and so and maybe one out of a hundred, I don't know what the numbers are, but one out of 50, one out of hundred, something like that, you stay in touch with and you become actual friends and you discover you have things in common and you and I have music and art in common, of course, and many other things. So yeah, it's a congratulations on your podcast. Thanks. I, I <laughs> understand it's been doing very well and, and rightly so, because you've got a great radio voice. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure you have a large number of interesting friends. <laughs> you do I do. I, I feel I'm I feel very blessed that I have a, a wide variety of uh I'm just like I, I say this a lot in the shows, but I'm just so like um proud of everyone I know and I'm I'm so inspired inspired by every your life i mean right now specifically you i'm like you know this person in front of me life that i'm just like wow so much inspiration that um helps me to you know kind of tap into like well what's the next thing i want to do or how to what's the create creative outlet that's coming and and just seeing like wow there is so much possibilities when i see people actualizing uh, friends of mine actualizing these these things that are just like uh, amazing. And really oh, thank you! Impressive. What a yeah. lovely compliment. Could we get in the TARDIS? Right to you. <laughs> could, could we get in the TARDIS and go back to about nineteen seventy five? And I'd like you to deliver what you just said to the headmaster of my very strict <laughs> British public school, who said that I and my my very brilliant childhood friend Neil Gaiman, who went to school with, as you know, yeah. sort of told both of us that we would never amount to anything <laughs> uh, repeatedly. And I love to tease Neil about this. Oh and my sometimes gosh. I'll, I'll tweet him and I go, oh, uh, uh, my my friend Dr. Cyan Proctor, the astronaut who went up in the Inspiration Four yeah. mission, who has a cameo in in the film that we we were working on, Love Song of William H. Shaw. Yeah. She took into space with her a copy of Sandman. Oh my and God. So I tweeted Neil and I go, you finally made it, man. Your work's going into space. If only, if only Mr. Parsons were alive to see it, the, the deputy head of our school who used to enjoy vilifying us and telling us that comics were garbage. Oh my. <laughs> He's gotten over it. I haven't. Yeah. I, it's I, I've carried a grudge for, I don't know what it is now, like 45 years. <laughs> and, and it can I, still I, fuel the fire. <laughs> oh, no, it does. Well, I remember walk, I vividly remember I'm walking home from school one day. I was probably 13 or 14, and I'm walking up the hill. This is in South London of the little the little town, part of South London where I grew up, Purley. Yeah. And I, I'm, I must have been grimacing because I'm thinking <laughs> about school. I've got my satchel with my books on it, and I, I'm, I'm probably thinking, oh, that's that's mean horrible awful teachers telling me oh, i'll never amount to anything i'll show them i'll show them i'll be bigger than all of them put together and this car screeches to a halt as i'm as i'm gripped by hatred for my school and and out jumps this woman and she's my neighbor a, a grown lady and she goes are you okay and i go mm. what do you mean and she goes the expression on your face i thought you were 
having a heart attack or in awful pain or, or something. Do you need to see a doctor or go to hospital? And I said, no, I was just thinking about my school. And the irony of it, of course, is that, as you well know, I, I have become accidentally hmm. a, a very passionate and committed advocate for education, especially science and arts education yeah. for for young kids uh, well ki- anybody but but especially underprivileged kids who maybe don't get access to science and arts and yeah. i'm often amused by how unhappy i was <laughs> at british public school and but i did go to great schools later i went to the american uh, to the american school in london in st john's wood which is an international school a great school i went to school of visual arts in new york city one of the world's great great art schools so lucky and privileged to have been there in, in the 80s uh, when New York was still dirty and dangerous. Yeah. Uh, very, very exciting. The dirty, da- oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Let's unpack some of that right okay. there. Yes. There, pre there's... New York City, pre gentrification, pre Giuliani in the, uh, when, when there were still, uh, vigilantes on the streets. It's like all these movies, bands. like the warriors and these things that are just like New York, like dangerous New York, where now it's like shishi and everything's like whatever, just you know, safe. But it was like a it was a danger zone, right? Oh my gosh! <laughs> so not not so many years ago, I was back in New York, and and my brother, my younger brother Andrew, who's a, an airline pilot and a super guy, we both happened to be in New York at the same time, and and we both always loved the band Blondie. We oh. we. Uh, Every you say Blondie and people immediately go Debbie Harry, what a great singer, what a beautiful person, what a great presence. But everybody in that band was fantastic. Clement Burke, one of the great drummers of all time, he's Jimmy incredible. He's yes, an incredible and I've met drummer. him several times. Uh, actually, we used to rehearse in the ru- in the studio next to Blondie. Oh my in, gosh! In New York City, when I was playing with Latch, and one afternoon we're there and we're rehearsing, we're rehearsing. It's very, it's great studio on. Uh, in, on the west side of Manhattan, downtown. Yeah. Called CMS. And big, you rent big studios with a stage and you could really refine your your shows. So so we're in there, we're, we're grinding through our punk stuff and we take a break and and we hear the song coming from next door and Latch goes, gosh, that sounds like Heart of Glass, doesn't it? And I go, yeah, it really does. It, I guess there's a cover band or there's somebody <laughs> doing Heart of Glass in their set because I'm so naive sometimes. I just don't, <laughs> sometimes I don't see the obvious in front of me that we're rehearsing at one of the top studios in New York City. We hear Heart of Glass and, and we take a break and we go into the lobby and there's all there's Blondie just sitting there having coffee. And and I'm a big fan of Chris Stein, the, the guitarist. And, oh. and he and I both play Steinbergers. So he plays a Steinberger guitar and I play a Steinberger bass. And so I said, oh, Chris, can, can we take can we take a photo? And he goes, yeah, yeah. So there's a photo of the two of us with our Steinbergers, but with a Sharpie, he'd scratched out burger. So his just Stein. Stein was <laughs> just one of my favorite little music anecdotes. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I warn you, I very easily digress. So oh, I love it. My, my brother and I were in New York and Blondie was playing. They were, they were playing in Times Square. And I go, that's, this is uh, several, quite a few years after I moved away from New York City, where I lived for many years. And I go, Blondie in Times Square, that's a bit hard to digest. Yeah. Because they're a major, major international pop sensation by now. Yeah. So we go to Times Square and it's like Vegas. I mean, it's so it's so clean. There are lights everywhere. There's no garbage on the street. There's nobody selling nunchucks on the street. There's nobody going loose joints, joints, joints. You know, no transvestite hookers coming up to you. Or you could not walk 
Now, you could not walk one block on 42nd Street without being accosted by prostitutes, drug dealers, arms dealers, uh, possibility of getting mugged. I mean, it was it was like going on a on a ride in a horror theme park. <laughs> and and the stores are all selling kung fu stuff, shurikens <laughs> and knives and uh, armor, just swords, crazy. How, I still don't understand how, this is me being naive again. Yeah. How is it that people could stand on 42nd Street, this is in the 80s and 90s, just selling drugs, just just on 42nd Street in front of the cinema, joints, joints. Yeah. You know, I'd run up to you, go, what do you want, man? You know, go, you go, feed acid, mushrooms, <laughs> mescaline, dana, peyote. What do you want? I don't want, just want to be, just want to walk down, just want yeah. to get to 8th Avenue without, without being accosted. <laughs> so it has changed so much. It is so, as you said, chic. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be now, fun to do like one of those... Uh, those haunted house, like amusement park rides of seventies oh, New York. Yes, <laughs> and yes, exactly. Yeah, and you'd have to have the. Oh, I can't. I'm having a. I'm having a brain spasm. What were the 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 urban vigilantes that wore the the red berets that used to travel around on the subways? Oh, the uh, urban vigilant. Oh, uh, not the I, blank pa- blank panther or no 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 it the, was. Um, um, those oh, volunteer group that patrolled the subways in Times Square, combating muggers. Oh. And I, I remember them. I remember it like it was yesterday. And this was another gray area in New York because you're not really supposed to. Guardian have Angels. Guardian Angels. Well done. I just well, looked well. Just to be fair, I looked that up on. Uh... Well, <laughs> I couldn't tell because it was seamless the way you delivered that. <laughs> I was so in awe of them, and a lot of them were women. Yeah. And a lot of them were were Hispanic. And yeah. so you might see a fairly petite woman, one or two women walking through the dangerous subway at night with the red berets and they'd often have stud belts and Whoa. tattoos and they they had the t-shirts, the guardian <laughs> angel t-shirts. And I mean, these people were badasses. Yeah. I'd, I'd stop, I'd nod or I'd, I'd kind of I'd tip my hat, yeah. a little informal salute. I was so amazed that these people would put themselves in harm's way to protect yeah. civilians. That's amazing. Citizens. Yeah. And why were they doing it? Because there was just so much crime that the, yeah. the police couldn't cope. Yeah. And you're not supposed to have vigilante organizations in the US. <laughs> and they did not keep a low profile. Yeah. They'd walk around in groups with the berets and the leather jackets and the studs. And a lot of them were very punk. Someone have safety pins. There was a kind of a bit of a punk vibe. What it was yeah. the eight. Probably a crossover too. Yeah. It was yeah. like leather. <laughs> I wonder if there's, if a, uh, if it, I'm sure there's a documentary film about them, but for for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, this is a it was a really really fascinating social feature of New yeah. York in that era. Yeah, and I if I was on the subway and and a couple of guardian angels would get on, I go, oh, thank God. Yeah, just like rest easier. Yeah. Well, it would be like hey, you've got two of the Avengers getting onto your subway car because nobody's going to mess with them. And if if you if they're around, you you always felt safe. That's and awesome. I was never actually mugged in New York. I lived in New York for many years. But, That's amazing. But wow. I did run into some very dodgy characters, and and was a few times, uh, quite a few times, felt unsafe and uh, 
nearly nearly got into a situation but it's amazing what you can what you can get away with when you have a english accent yes it's probably endearing <laughs> people are like you know give me your money be like oh i'm sorry i don't have a you know i don't, don't have any coin on me <laughs> be like all right man just get out <laughs> what's the, you were so like you were i mean i'm this is one of the ways we started bonding you know when i first met you on the set of revenge of zoe that's our like that was my first time. I remember during the table read for the for that meeting you. And then when we were actually on set, that's when we started to like, you know, really like get into some cool stuff and just talking about our the punk rock days, which, you know, for me started in the um like mid nineties, late nineties, but you were there for the <laughs> original. You were there. I was so I was probably like third wave i guess it's considered third wave punk because I, I got really the, the past year i started going back into all the roots that i just have loved and i i think i've like kind of brushed away a little bit here and there but but like my my punk origins and um so you you were there for the first wave i, mean, I really was and there's nothing wrong with third wave punk right. uh, solidarity okay. brother yeah, it's great solidarity. stuff but great, it, great stuff came and out I was what I was we but we always went to first way it was like what yes. the original well you ha you would have to if I mean if yeah. you like punk you've got to go back to the original oh, you've yeah. got to go back to to Ramones and and Clash and Sex Pistols and The Damned and Heartbreakers and all that great stuff I remember so, you telling me about this though you saw the Clash in London right yeah like little clubs multiple times <laughs> and at the famous Victoria Park anti-Nazi league rally, which I believe was the summer of 1978, if I remember correctly. And that is very prominently seen in the documentary Westway to the World, the yes. official documentary about the Clash, which is not only the best thing that's been done about the Clash and or Joe Strummer, but in my opinion, as a nutcase, avid music fanatic, the best music documentary ever. I, yes. I love that film directed by Don Lett. I must have seen it 20 times. It's so spot on yeah. in every way. It recaptures what it really felt like in London in the punk years. And there are new interviews with all the members of the clash, in, including both the, the drummers, yeah. including uh, uh, Topper uh, who <laughs> uh, left the band during their heyday, as you know. But yes, so I saw The Clash multiple times. I've I've been to hundreds of concerts. I've seen, I mean, I've I've seen almost every band that ever interested me. No bands that I've seen could compare with The Clash. And the the other ones that came close would be The Who, The Ramones, The Alarm, were one of the really great live bands, The Kinks. Oh. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. But there was something about The Clash the incandescent power that that funneled out of this band into the audience is is not really a thing that can be described in words you you had to feel it and there were so many excellent bands in that era but i just in my whole in a in a lifetime of going to concerts and and films and spectacle, I've just never seen anything that could quite compare with the controlled fury of that band. Oh, you know, I and mean, that's why they're called the only band that matters. And the evolution 
of The Clash during those few short years is really something. So you listen to the first album, Janie Jones' Career Opportunities. I love all yeah. that stuff. Their, oh, it's so their good. first album has this, this quite thin, raw, immediate sound. They're short, sharp songs. And within a few years, they're doing Sandinista. They're doing a triple album with, with dub and jazz. They were uh, early proponents and uh, experimenters with rap and what we would now call hip hop. What a diverse experience. And to have been four punks from North London to go on that musical voyage, it's it's astonishing. I, I don't... I think the only other thing that would be comparable maybe would be the Beatles. And of mm. course it's very, it's very different, but when you think yeah. the Beatles going from, from, from Beatlemania pop bands to Sergeant Pepper also in the period of a few years, it's, yeah. it's a transformation of that level. And as a, as an innovative musician yourself, I know you, you understand what is involved in that. And then and the other, the other side of the coin, you get the Ramones mm. who I would say would be, Almost as fantastic as The Clash. I saw the Ramones 18 times in concert, <laughs> spanning their entire career, starting with Tommy in the old days. In, oh. in, uh, when the second album was out, when Leave Home was out. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. They were really something. They were like a military unit. The precision of that band, that yeah. they would get on stage and they would do 21 songs or 23 songs with no set list, no talking to the audience. This is no, it's the opposite of the clash. Joe would be going, yeah, well, listen, if you don't understand what's going on, just ask the person next to you. And he'd have all this great stage pattern. And he, <laughs> he, he would connect with the audience and he would tell stories. And he, he was so personable. Yeah. There's none of that in the Ramones. They come on, they wouldn't even intro the band. They come on, they'd start with the Durango 95, the little instrumental, go into teenage lobotomy that pretty much always do the same set. Right. Right. Gradually evolve over the years. They, okay. They've had a hit with Pet Cemetery, so they put that into the set, but otherwise hardly anything yeah. different. Yeah. And and there's the there's one point in the set, it's maybe it's usually after about the third song or the fourth song, and Joey will say something like, Hey, brother Ramones, this one's called Rockaway Bitch. <laughs> and then and Dee, Dee would count it off, and that'd be it. Yeah. There's no thanks for coming. We're enjoying the tour. It's great to be back in New York. There's none yeah. of that. Yeah. They just come on. It it, it was it was like a monolith. Yeah. It's not a, you do not interact with this band. They yeah. come on stage, they explode through 21 songs, and then they go. And they come yeah. back, they do three songs for the encore, done. No, no pattern, no rapport. Not in a, not in a, I want to emphasize, it's not <laughs> they didn't care about the audience. Yeah. They're not, they're not looking down on the audience. They were committed to putting on a show that did not involve what was going on in the in the space, in the mm -hmm. theater. They were so focused on their performance yeah. and how you could rip through 21 songs like that without a set list. I just, I don't know. It's crazy. They were, man. They were like a machine. I saw their last two concerts. So I saw the, <laughs> their last ones and it was one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever seen live just because it felt like all those years, you know, decades worth of Ramones and just like this force that was just like, you know, and, and playing in bands and just trying to even just do downstroke, like Johnny's guitar <laughs> downstroke, right? and or or uh, Marky's, you know, those eighth notes. It's like crazy how intense and fast and precise it is. 
And, and like, thousands of times. Yeah. They were a relentless touring band <laughs> and would do around, if I remember correctly, 300 shows a year for something like over Nuts. 20 years. I mean, yeah. it's mind bending. Yeah. It was and wild. It, it would be one thing if it was, if it was a jazz trio and it was, it was sort of mellow or if it yeah. was folk. But this is the most harrowing high-speed performance yeah. you could imagine. Yeah. And they did it relentlessly, <laughs> and they didn't get on with each other. I know. They didn't talk, it's right, terrible, Johnny and Joey? <laughs> yeah. Terrible tension within the band. And there's a there's a great documentary, End of the Century. Yeah, that one's so good. I was going to – when you said the best I, – I really think I do agree with you in the best music documentary being the uh, West Way to the World. And we had like a Rude Boy, that video. We had a VHS of Rude Boy – the video yes. that has that park concert and it's also in Westway of the world. But I remember like seeing that and then Westway came out. I was like, Oh my God, this is incredible. And, um, and then the Ramones documentary being like kind of a comparable, it's phenomenal. It's so good. Yes. Although <clears throat> the, the quality of the film in the Ramones documentary is not as consistent because a lot of it was shot on the bus and in video yeah. and everything. And I'm, that doesn't downplay the, the, the amazing, historical document that it is but the but Westway to the world the clash documentary is so well crafted yeah and and don letts was able to sit down with all the members and get these very articulate interviews for from all of them and and joe strummer one of the most fascinating public speakers yeah. ever i studied i studied films of joe yeah endlessly because i when I started doing public speaking and started doing shows and recording, I thought, who is the best person? Who's the best person who does interviews? And I, and I thought, well, it's Joe Strummer, especially oh, wow. later in life. Yeah. Articulate, committed, passionate, informed, never says, um, uh, well, you know, like whatever sort of, sort of, kind of, sort of. You listen mm. to interviews today. If you, if you stripped out the kind of the sort of the, you know, the like, the whatever, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? There's nothing left. Mm-hmm. But that is the bulk <laughs> of most interviews, uh, sadly, in the modern world. So, so Joe was a was a consummate speaker. But I also, since we're talking about music documentaries, I also really have to commend the Sparks documentary. I just saw that a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> I so I always liked Sparks. I remembered them. They were quite big when I was a teenager. They were yeah. of that era, too. But I had no idea that they had been relentlessly producing writing recording producing and performing extremely original and innovative music on their own terms ever since talk about punk rock yeah. mentality they just wouldn't give up they wouldn't compromise and they did it all themselves that's really yeah. that's the punk ethos and my other most fa favorite music documentary is muscle shoals which oh yeah, that one's phenomenal too. Another beautiful, yeah. beautiful film that just makes you want to go create. Oh, mm -hmm. and Revenge of the Mekons, another yes. one of my favorite bands. Yeah, I remember another you told fantastic me about that documentary. One they, yeah, yeah. That, one's, that one's so good. So I know them a bit. My yeah. my great friend Anne Hussick, who played in in Band of Susans for many years, who you know because she did some of the songs on our soundtrack. Yeah. So Band of Susans toured with the Mekons a lot, and so. I got to meet them and hang out with them a bit and I've seen them many, many times. That film is the band. It's so, mm. it's so real. I watched, I watched Revenge of the Mekons and I felt like I was just sitting in the living room with them. That's so nice. And yeah. I, it's great when that happens <laughs> when you, it's so authentic. Yeah. And 
just a little bit before the pandemic, I flew to California to see them. And I'm not a millionaire, but yeah. I'm a maniac. Yeah. So there are a few bands that I would get on a plane. I, I've done I've done that for the New York Dolls, for the Who, and huh. Mekons, I think, <laughs> were the only bands I got on a plane and either flew across the country or, in the case of the Who, flew to England to see them wow. because of the opportunity of seeing them in a comparatively small venue. Oh, my god! And my so my my New York Dolls story is my my favorite about perhaps overdoing it. I don't know, yeah. overdoing it. Showing your commitment to a band. Well, that also makes sense with the band like them to that you have to overdo it to see oh, them. <laughs> absolutely very well said. Yes, and I, and I must say that this, sadly, was not the original New York Dolls mm-hmm. from 1973, I wish. Yeah. 1972 or 73. But this was the revamped Dolls from the early 2000s. And so David Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain still with the band and yeah. with fantastic guys that they picked up to do it. So, so they announced, they put out a new album. They announced this very short tour. I think it's only seven dates. It was right after I'd moved to Tucson. Oh, no Arizona date. So the nearest place they're playing is the belly up in Solano beach, which is a bit North of San Diego. So I called around to my friends like New York dolls are playing. We've never seen the New York dolls. They disbanded when we were 13 or whatever. Yeah. I have to go. Could not get any friend of mine to go with me. I thought, well, a road trip to San Diego. It'll be great fun. We'll overnight. We'll party. No, 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 no. No. Couldn't get anyone to go. And I go, well, to heck with it. I'm going. I don't care if no one's going to go with me. So I I bought the concert ticket and then I bought the airline ticket and then I booked a car rental and then I found a hotel. And I wanted the hotel to be within walking distance of the club and uh, because I didn't want to have to drive afterwards. Yeah. So- I will tell you, it was the most expensive concert I've ever been to, <laughs> but the ticket was only 20 bucks. <laughs> but Solano Beach is quite a, it's quite, it's very nice. It's quite shishi. Yeah. So hotel was not cheap. Who gets on a plane and flies to California to see a band? It's right. crazy. Yeah. So later I did the math and it cost me $10 for every minute they were on stage. <laughs> And it was worth every penny to see David Johansson sing Jet Boy in oh. real life. Oh. It was, you couldn't put a price on that. You could, awesome. just couldn't. And personality crisis. And they even covered Johnny Thunder's Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory, which was very moving. And I, oh. I did tear up a little bit because it's oh, a beautiful song and it's a sad song. And of course, Johnny Thunder's had long since passed away Yeah, by then. Original <sighs> member of the Dolls. God, that's so beautiful. So I told you I could digress, but you. I, well, I I love that. I love it. And so come back around, like you knew in England. Um, see, I mean, just knowing that there's you're seeing all the bands, you're seeing everyone that in real time as they're coming up, like these these groups clash, and then like uh, I don't know, we say the uh, was it the the Avengers, the Addicts, the. Uh, vibrators all these like all these punk sham 69 um all these all these groups that are there you're living in and then the next logical step is i want to create a band right well it was actually slightly different from that you are absolutely correct and that is what happened with many many of the bands but i was already in a band so Ah. i mentioned briefly so my my oldest surviving friend and and one of my closest friends in the world is Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And we met when we were 10. We went to school together. We grew up together. We were inseparable. He was the 
together with our other friend, David Dixon, in, in a school of, of close to a thousand boys, there were only three of us who were into comics and sci-fi. Wow. So we connected over that. And Neil was a, a guy who was always ahead of his time. He was very sophisticated, quirky young guy, always reading complex novels, was very into unusual music. And I, I liked in that era, mid seventies, late seventies going into the, just before punk, I was already into the odd stuff, I guess. So, so <laughs> no, I don't mean, I don't mean any disrespect here because, because they're great bands, but everyone at my school was listening to Led Zeppelin. Yes. And Genesis. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get into it. Mm-hmm. So I bought Led Zeppelin for, I went to see yes. I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. I admired the technical excellence but it was so long. It was, mm-hmm. All of it was so long. It was very complicated. And so I was drawn to, to more slovenly, uh, less perfect music <laughs> like Iggy Pop, yeah. MC5. And I loved the glam stuff. I loved Roxy Music. That was the era of Roxy Music and Mark Boland T-Rex. And it was it was Bowie's. It was a little bit after a couple, few years after Spiders from Mars. So, mm. so we're into the into Bowie's next, getting into Station to Station era, Diamond Dogs. So I liked all. I like I like good. I like short, sharp, fast, catchy songs. Yeah. And then Neil turned me on to Lou Reed. Uh-huh. So he made me listen to every Velvet Underground album, including the live stuff, everything. He was he was a real big Lou Reed fan. Mm. And in 1976, when we were 15, he said, Lou Reed is playing in London. We have to, we have to go. We're going to oh. go. I'd never been to a concert. Never, well, I'd been to classical concerts with my parents. But I'd never been to see a rock band. Yeah. So we went to, got on the train. We went after school. It's so funny when you think back now to what seemed normal. So we're wearing our school uniforms with these, these blue horsehair blazers and these striped ties and, and our tight gray trousers and our little beetle boots. And you'd think we would, we, it would occur to us to get out of our school uniforms before we go to see Lou Reed in, in central London, but no. So we went, we, we didn't know anything. We went early. We didn't know, you know, you get a ticket and it goes, it, it, it'll say something like door is six 30. Right. But band doesn't go until nine, but you yeah. don't know that. So we went early. We're waiting around outside and it was assigned seating. So we're standing outside the, the theater. I think it was May. It was April or May of 1976. I think. So this is right at the beginning of punk. Punk's not in the news yet. It's not, yeah. there's nobody on television yet or in the newspapers. So there are these two girls standing in front of the theater with real thick black eye makeup. And one of them's got a mohawk and one of them's got a safety pin in her lip and torn up clothes. They look so cool. And they look dangerous. They look like jungle cats. <laughs> and I said to Neil, I vividly remember it's not, not who are they or what are they doing? I said, what are they? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, it, it, in, in an intrigued uh, awestruck manner. <laughs> I was immediately drawn to these. Oh, they looked like they just didn't give a damn about anything. And one girl smoking and they're very confident <laughs> and sneering at everything. And I go, well, I want to be like those people. 
So Neil casually goes, oh, they're just punk rockers. It's the new thing. So he already knew somehow (laughs) Yeah. in in the early spring of 76, he already knew. So we had a band. Yeah. And we were, originally we were called Impact. And then we decided that was, which is ironic given my later career in media. Oh, that is, I never put that together. Funny, isn't it? With your meteorites. (laughs) Then we changed our name to Chaos. I think we felt impact was a bit too obvious or square. I don't know. We changed our name to Chaos. And then we discovered there was another band called Chaos. And we saw their picture in the paper and they really looked like some dangerous guys. So we decided to, (laughs) so we changed our name to the X Execs. X hyphen Execs, the X Execs. And (laughs) the band was was 100% Neil's idea. Mm. I didn't play an instrument. He sang and he played a bit of bass and he said, we should start a band. This was before we went to see Lou Reed. We should start a band. And the primary reason reasoning for this was he said it would be a good way to meet girls. Mm-hmm. Not for creative satisfaction. <laughs> good way to meet girls. Because we are in an all-boys school and neither yeah. of us had sisters. Yeah. And so in the very segregated, stratified society of 1970s England, it was very difficult to meet people of the opposite sex. Yeah. They, don't, they just as soon keep you apart, which explains a lot about some of the British social problems that, that surface in later life. Yeah. But we'll save that. <laughs> we won't get into that. So so we started this, this proto band that we had and Neil, Neil just decreed that I should be the drummer. He goes, you're good at hitting things. You should be the drummer. That, that was it. So I taught myself drums and I learned drums by listening to Ziggy Stardust, yeah. Spiders from Mars yeah. with headphones hundreds of times and mm. i just played along with it that's how i learned to play drums yeah. ironically woody woodmansey who was the drummer in spiders from mars later became my drum teacher oh my god of all things what? so i actually studied with the great woody woodmansey wow who was uh did four four albums with with bowie and was in the guinness book of records as playing the world's largest drum kit for for quite some years <laughs> so so we already had this band and we were doing Lou Reed and Bowie covers and Neil wrote some good songs. He's a good songwriter. I couldn't really understand how to write songs, but Neil could. And so we already had this thing in play and then punk started. And it was like, it was as if we'd custom ordered it. It was as if we'd sat around and said, well, we're dissatisfied with the music on offer. That's why we're listening to the Stooges and MC5 and Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, etc." And, but we don't know what to do. We need some direction. Oh, well, why don't you go see this band, The Jam or The Clash or The Ramones mm. or The Damned? <clears throat> and it, the timing was impeccable. So we were 15, 16 when punk rock broke. We we're already in a band. So we just went, we went for it. I went yeah. for it more than yeah. anybody else. Yeah. At full speed. It was, I just, it, 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 this, it was first, it was seeing those two girls where I had the two punks outside the Lurie concert. I go, this is, there's something here for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I heard the music, I go, it's the full package. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. It's anti-establishment. It's energetic. They're short, sharp pop songs wound up with angst. Yeah. And it was so different from the 17 minute extravaganzas of the, of the technical bands of the era. Yeah. And so I fully embraced it and I had this experience that there were these weekly news music papers, but I don't think we really have anything like it in the States, but 
Well, there are newspapers that publish once a week sounds, New Musical Express, Melody Maker. Hit Parade? And they were, uh, or wait, well, Hit Parade but, was... But Hit Parade was a magazine, oh, wasn't it? Pro- Color yeah. magazine. So these were actually newspapers. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Black and white newspapers with a, with a bit of red on the cover, usually. Yeah. But just on newsprint. And they were full-size newspapers. I don't know, 80, 100 pages full of record reviews and concert reviews wow. and ads and tour news. And it, it's amazing that the market could sustain not one, but multiple of these coming out yeah. every week. Yeah. So I, I still have some of them. Oh. I saved a few. You look through the gig guides at the back of the paper and there's the marquee and uh, Dingwalls, all, all these little clubs. They were they were an outgrowth of the pub rock scene from London. So they're essentially pubs yeah. with a f- small function room and a stage. And the the... The bands meet in the wave immediately before punk. It's not nearly as well known, but the pub that's called pub rock, Dr. Feelgood, the Pirates, Eddie and the Hot Rods, mm. uh, sort of a, a fast bluesy type. It was a high energy thing. Joe's Strummer's band, the 101ers prior to the clash. Yeah. They paved the way. They started making deals with these pub owners and saying, hey, can we can we rent the function room and we'll do a gig? Cause there's nowhere to play. There's nowhere for these angsty that doesn't fit in with 19 mid 1970s complex band sound. They don't fit with that. So they're not going to be able to play at Wembley stadium. So they, yeah. so they, they started this movement. It was very punk. It was very DIY. Yeah. Well, we can't play at the respectable clubs. We don't have anything. We'll rent the room for, for 10 shillings and then, We'll, we'll keep the, we'll split the door with the club owner or however they did it and the club owners usually the pub owners usually happy because they sell some beer and there's probably a fight at the end so that paved the way for punk rock so now we've got these these smaller venues that are doing music like CBGBs yes it's that kind of it's that kind of situation very small club with a bar four bands a night whatever which wasn't and cbgb's was a country western bar i know right so it's like yes we like know it is this other thing but it was like these other places they got repurposed and can i say i knew hilly crystal reasonably well i mean i met him many times yeah and and he was always there i must have played at cbgb's i don't know 30 times 40 times in various bands during the punk years and hilly was usually there and he was I mean, I did quite like him. At first, I thought he was grumpy, and then I realized he was sad oh. because he wanted to have a country blues and bluegrass <laughs> club, and he accidentally ended up being the cradle of punk rock. Yeah. And so instead of having this this gentle <laughs> roots American music, well, he did have a roots American music, but it wasn't gentle. Yeah. <laughs> and when I found out that they were doing a movie of CBGB's and that Alan Rickman was playing him. I thought I absolutely love Alan Rickman. I think he's so amazing and brilliant actor, a British actor playing. Yeah, but it's not going to work. Yeah. That's not going to work. He nailed it. (laughs) He was so much like Hilly. I couldn't get over it. It was almost uncomfortable to watch. (laughs) And with his, with this dog, that dog was always with him. And a lot of people in New York, a lot of my friends and colleagues, they really poo-poo that film. They go, oh, that film's rubbish. And I go, it is not rubbish. Yeah. They recreated 
the feel, the set that they built for CBGBs. It's immaculate. I was watching it going, I have to have filmed it in the real CBGBs, except I know that they didn't because CBGBs is now a clothing store. I've gazed in the window in horror. It is not a punk club anymore. And Alan Rickman was so spot on. And the, the people they cast to play young television and young Blondie and young Ramones, it was so good. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't like that movie, I don't know what to say. You you must reevaluate. You must be more open minded because it is it's a very authentic portrayal of of that era. But what what I was I was yeah. talking about the early punk years and those music newspapers. You yeah. go through I'd go through the ads at the back and you look at the ads. This is how I got onto the long thing about pub rock in the clubs. So there are loads of little clubs and pubs in London, loads of them, with bands five, six, seven nights a week. So you look at the listings and go, oh, let's see. Okay, so this week, on Friday night, we've got the Stranglers, the Jam, and the Clash are playing at three different clubs. Saturday night, the Vibrators, Stiff Little Fingers are over from Ireland. You you could not believe the the riches on offer as as a punk rock enthusiast. And my poor parents, I would have gone out 365 nights a year for three consecutive years if they had not almost nailed me to the floor of the house <laughs> as it was i probably i went to hundreds of concerts during those years i probably went out two three nights a week but imagine being faced by this problem i can't decide if i want to see the jam or stiff little fingers tonight oh, and then tomorrow it's the same problem because because oh. the buzzcocks and the stranglers are playing on the same night at two different clubs oh man i'm jealous oh I was so lucky. I was yeah. so, I'm also very lucky not to have been stabbed or Just, thrown out of a second floor window at a club. I was chased down the street by a gang of skinheads and, and dangled over uh, the railing in a, oh. in a concrete oh, wow. uh, sort of like multi-story car park. Yeah. Fortunately, they decided not to drop me, but it was very scary. You yeah. were in danger yeah. when you went out dressed as a punk yeah so i had my biker jacket and my spiky orange hair and yeah and there were warring factions it was you mentioned the warriors early it was earlier it was a bit like that they didn't mm. carry baseball bats but yeah they're they're the teddy boys they're the skinheads they're the punk rockers yeah so you did see gangs of of people out looking for trouble and there were many times like oh gang of skinheads and just stick in duck into a alleyway or i did a shop until (laughs) until they went by so you were taking a risk in making a statement by by going out i don't think i would have the nerve to do it today i I know it's like yeah you didn't know any better (laughs) i did get hit in the face by a by a a glass pint mug. Oh. Uh, uh, first time I saw the Buzzcocks, yeah. they came on stage and, and, and uh, Pete Shelley goes, where the Buzzcocks? And this is fast cars. One, two, three, four. And I saw this pint glass sailing over the rim and I go, here comes a pint glass. Boosh. Oh right God. into my forehead oh. in the first 10 seconds of the first song. <laughs> oh so I had, I had mild concussion for that gig. Uh, I was, I was kicked in the nose on the, the bridge of my nose by a skinhead oh. watch seeing Joe Strummer at the Palladium. Wow. He um he was stage diving oh. and he uh he yeah he let he is a big guy with Dr. Martin's boots and he just flung himself into the into the crowd and he's flailing about and his his Doc Martin caught me right on the bridge of the nose. But I got him back later. <laughs> 
I probably won't. I won't go into details, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, I fully compensated him for that later. <laughs> With- so yeah, there was definitely some injuries. Uh, yeah. I was punched in the face at a B-52s concert. I had a huge yeah. black eye from that. Just being down at the front. Yeah. Just, just a big skinhead looks at me and goes, Oi, mate. Boom. Yeah. These are interactive. Not, not me over. Interactive you know? shows. Yes. This is very different from standing there look, watching it through your iPhone. Yes. Yes. Very, very iPhone. different times. <laughs> this is a very immediate, somewhat dangerous uh, process. And of course, I always had to be down at the front. Yeah. I wouldn't do that now either. I'm quite happy to stand at the back now. Yeah, me too. I feel like I can. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. And so, and so when you were, what got you to New York? How did it, like, I go from one danger zone to the, yeah. there to the. Well, this is a, an odd bit of my story, really. So for, for being such a maverick and fully immersing myself in the counterculture, I really partly came to the States to please my parents. Yeah. So. In when I for for we didn't have grades in England, but I didn't do very well at, at English school. I I didn't fit I didn't fit well, especially then when I was in the punk band. I didn't fit well with the strictures of having to wear a uniform and say prayers every morning and and be at a military school where we had to do military cadet service and all of that. It, I was just <laughs> I was chafing at every possible aspect of this. So yeah. So I, in England, you can stop going to school when you're 16, if, if you want, or if you get thrown out. So my parents were very, I had wonderful parents and they were yeah. very supportive of my insane behavior and antics. And they, <laughs> but they really wanted me to finish school. And so after I was no longer welcome at British public school, they implored me to go look at the American school in London in St. John's Wood. And it was love at first sight when I mm. I went there. So I made a deal with my parents. I've made a lot of deals in my life. This was uh, not the first one, but one of the big ones, which was I would go go to the American high school in London, finish high school, be good, do well, and then no more rules and regulations after that for the rest of my life. So they said, okay, that's fair. Yeah. So I did that. I loved the American school. I I still have uh, some of my closest friends in the world. That was a, gosh, what a place that was. It was a very progressive School. So I was there. Started in '78. Graduated in '79. So right in the right in the heyday of punk rock in '78. Yeah. And there were students from all over the world there. So I got a really nice uh, introduction to students from other cultures, and a lot of them were were children of diplomats or military or people corp companies parents traveled a lot for business foreign service that kind of thing my parents were foreign service as well oh so then i stayed in london after i graduated i stayed in london i was playing in a in a band called the marines a three-piece band and my mm. bass player singer from that band martin brett went on to have a fantastic career he was the bass player in voice of the beehive and oh. the was great Anglo-American band that had, I think, two platinum albums. Wow. was uh, two, two singers, uh, Tracy and Missy, American sisters were the singers. And then the, the backing band, bass, guitar, and drums were, were all British punks. So, so Martin on bass, uh, Woody from Madness was the drummer. <laughs> wow. And I loved that band. They were great. I saw them many times. So, and, and Martin's still, still playing music. He's, uh, he's got a music publishing company, very wonderful guy, had a great career. 
in music. So I stayed and played with them, with that band, for a year and a bit. And then my parents were really keen that I would go to college. Yeah. And I had traveled in the States when I was growing up. We've been over to the States quite a few times and was very enamored of America, of the scale of everything. The size of the country, the size of the cars, the size of the shops, the <laughs> the you can feel the 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 desire mm. to be better mm-hmm. in the air when you come here from England. Yeah. So I absolutely love England. England is my home. I have nothing but love for England and the English. But most of my English friends are grateful for where they are. Yeah. You don't really see this drive to get to the next rung in England the way you do here. Mm-hmm. And it's it's palpable. And it's not just the desire to do it. It's the, at least then, it, it, we might talk about this later. I don't yeah. feel that America is any longer as supportive of entrepreneurship as it used mm. to be. Uh-huh. And I mean that in a, the establishment is not, they're not so keen for you to succeed anymore. Things have yeah. changed here a lot, but it was, it was apps. I hate to resort to cliche, but it was land of opportunity. Land of milk it, and honey. It, it, <laughs> uh, land of, <laughs> land of Tennessee whiskey and, yeah. and Sicilian pizza. Yeah. Um, and, and An apple big pie. motor cars and Jack Kerouac <laughs> in the open road and deserts and cactus and mountains or, and, and big bands and American radio, yeah. radio that you could drive to fast down the highway in a big car with the top down. Like one of our states, one of the states here is as big as a country in Europe. Oh, absolutely. So that's just yes. to like, it kind of yeah. hits me sometimes. That Yeah, so France and Texas are about roughly the same size. Wow. So you could fit England into numerous states wow. in America with yeah. room to spare. Yeah. So England is a very small place. Very, very, very rich in culture and history and innovation and wonderful things. And and I continue to be somewhat dazzled by how well the English do the arts, mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how uh, engaged, enmeshed in it, the, the culture and the, the local councils and, and the government and the museums ca- can be in, in many ways, how very well they do websites and interactive things and yeah th- there's a lot the the social hierarchy or structure in england seems much more deeply invested in the arts there i think than here yeah we we do have some here but i if you want to be an artist in the states you're really on your own mm-hmm. don't expect to get much help from anybody yeah. in england there's yeah. all sorts of grants and I, admittedly it's many years since i've lived there and some of my friends in england would be, probably be listening to this guy no nah, it's not as good as you think it is <laughs> but i was just looking at the website for the serpentine gallery the other day and i go it's so amazing mm. that you could download a pamphlet there's readings there's free things there's interactive they're recreating a studio an artist's studio in the gallery and uh, installations sculptures it, it's very impressive there's yeah. a degree of, com- I think commitment, that's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. There's a degree of commitment between the establishment and yeah. the arts yeah. that we don't have here. Yeah. And we have great stuff. We've got NPR, 
National Endowment for the Arts. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, don't get me wrong. There's many, many great things, many foundations. But but it's it, it, from my perception, much or most of that is independent foundations, people working hard to support NPR through independent grants. It's different. It'd be nice if it was more woven through our governmental agencies. Yes. And, and there's a lot of disdain for the arts. Yeah, from I know. It's many, like, many. Yeah. People oh, it's, that's, that's ancillary. That's just something that's extracurricular. And it's like, well, that's what could really help people's <laughs> mental yes. space. Other than just like a Hollywood, big, big Hollywood thing, which, you know, people are like, okay, well, there's that. But, you know. Um, and my argument, you're so, you're so right. My argument for that is people go, why are the arts important? And I go, what is the point of living if you don't have the arts? Yeah. We all work hard. Stress in our lives. America's very stressful country to live in now, yeah. especially yeah. if you're an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Do not make it easy. There's so much bureaucracy in the States. Every little thing, taxes, insurance, payroll, so complicated. Here's a former punk rocker telling you this <laughs> from my own experience. Yeah. But, well, but that's, and that's, yeah. And that's always the fairness, right? That's what punk was trying to do is yes. more equality, equality and calling out the inequalities of and it remains the punk rock ethos remains very very ingrained in my life and i i never subscribed to the anarchy thing i thought that was it was just yeah. silly people don't yeah. really know what anarchy would entail a utopian anarchy would be anarchy is the wrong word for that utopian anarchy would be would be a nice commune i suppose mm, yeah. but the the anarchy thing that's just that's just silly yeah and nobody that I know would enjoy living in an anarchic society because <laughs> you could just shoot anybody that you didn't right. like yeah. and there would be no roads and there'd be no electricity. Yeah. People would just sit around <laughs> drinking and shooting at their neighbors. It would be awful. It would be, it would be like uh, station 11. If you, yeah. if you've seen that, which oh. is on, uh, on telly at the moment. Yeah. So yeah, not that part, but yeah. the do it yourself, <laughs> the hardworking, the ethos, the, the concept that, well, the major labels are never going to, be interested in my band so i'm going to make a record myself and put it out myself and and be responsible for the artwork and the distribution that yeah is the central core of of, of punk rock to, yeah. to me going go, not following the mainstream believing in what you do for the sake of its own creation and making it promoting it and 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 not compromising your artistic ideals that's the most important thing Mm-hmm. As Joe Strummer would say, we demand total artistic control. I have to do it in the Joe voice. We demand total art, total artistic control. <laughs> Not doing it very well. Yeah. But I've, I'm a maniac for that. Mm-hmm. I still want artistic control over everything that I'm involved with, which, yeah. as you can imagine, doesn't go over very well in network television. But yeah. does, well, I sh- total artistic control i'm not like that with our with our films i'm not like that with our with our fellow producers revenge mm-hmm. of zoe and, and but, Love but because there's there is the camaraderie camaraderie yes. and their fellowship together working to to make that whereas if you do have a, a large uh uh production company or um you know a, a studio they are going to be influencing and i don't think people realize that like th- you have somebody who uh i don't know i think of um uh, what's the the you know Interstellar and uh, the, the some of the, that uh, oh that director oh my gosh that's a mind blank um, 
<laughs> Christopher Nolan. There it is. Um, Christopher Nolan, you know, he does things his way. And yet he is getting influenced, you know, by the studios. They come in and they he has to compromise things. Of course. And they have to, if you're in that level of that much money, you, Yo, you're, for having, sure. you're having to do things. So to be able but, to be totally free, you know. And that, and, and that's, uh, that's the central argument for indie film for me. Yeah, and you may know the the great American maverick filmmaker Larry Cohen. There's oh, a terrific yeah. documentary about him that's uh, came out a couple of years ago, and I've watched it several times. And he made the wisest remark I've ever heard about filmmaking, which is the higher the budget, the higher the level of interference. Oh, and I heard him say that, and I go, man, that is absolutely it. That's that it. is exactly what it is. The more money there is, the more people are involved, mm-hmm. the, the more people have to have their say and put their stamp on it. And you would hope that you would have a friendly collaboration and that everybody would bring skills to the table. And that is not necessarily what happens. It does happen in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't, I, I laughed. I said, well, total artistic control. Not, <laughs> not, not with the current films because the people we're working with Eric Schumacher, Cliff Campbell, Marty Catola, our, our fellow producers, executive producers. These are brilliant guys. Yeah. They absolutely know what they're doing. They work for the common good. Every, every one of the, the four core producers, of which I'm one on these films, we have our own skill set. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows what their skill set is. And they work in that area. And they're respectful of their colleagues. It's, a, it's the ideal collaborative environment. And let me tell you, as someone who spent his entire life in the arts, well, I don't need to tell you this because you already know this. Let me tell listeners, <laughs> it's so rare. I would almost use a curse word to say how rare it is in the arts, mm-hmm. in a collaborative thing that you would like and respect everybody that you work with. And they let we all let each other do our thing within the framework. This never happens. Yeah. yeah. It's so rare and that's why I love working on these films with you and yeah. our and our group, because I will have an insane idea. Like we'll have, we'll have our producers call, and I'll I'll say, guys, I had this, I had a dream that Ed Gibson, the Skylab astronaut, ca- came into the comic book store with a Skylab comic and wanted to sell it to us. That's the <laughs> dream I had last night. And they go, that's so weird. And I go, we can we actually do that? Yeah. Because I know Ed. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. And they go, if you can make it happen. (laughs) So I commissioned Carl Ottersberg, our poster artist, to draw a Skylab comic, exactly like the one I saw in my dream. There is no Skylab comic in real life. And then I pitched to Ed Gibson, who's a wonderful, brilliant gentleman, 84 days in space on Skylab. Ed, would you do a cameo in this film? Would you come in into the comic book shop as yourself with a stack of comics and try and sell them to us? And and he goes, sure, that sounds like fun. He's in his 80s. Brilliant, brilliant scientist, astronaut, executive. Oh. And so it's almost like a dream that, the, that anybody would say, okay, mm-hmm. that they would let me do that. Okay, Jeff, that sounds like fun. If you want to bring an astronaut, and we ended up having two astronauts in our film because Cyan Proctor is, has, is, has a cameo as well. But that was before she'd gone into space. 
So now I just love going around telling people we've got two astronauts in our film <laughs> and it's it. not a space documentary. It is a comedy <laughs> drama about the comic book business. <laughs> I love it. So that it's so satisfying. You know, you've worked yeah. with these guys for years. You know what it's like. Oh, it's and great. How great it is to yeah. be in this. And then I also, when we were quite far along in Revenge of Zoe, we were having one of our weekly producers calls. And I, I said, guys, I've got a question for you. Not counting Baby Driver, which had just come out. Mm. What is the last film you saw that had such a good soundtrack you wanted to go buy the soundtrack and just listen to it as, on its own? And they went, um, 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 and the consensus was gross point blank. Oh, and I okay. Said, right? Yeah, Ooh. exactly. Nice. So I said, can we have a rock and roll soundtrack? Yeah. And I, I had a... <laughs> I had a little place screen print a t-shirt for me that said kick ass rock and roll soundtrack. And you probably saw me wearing it. I used <laughs> yes. to wear it all the time. I'd wear yeah. it when we were filming and I go, this is what we're doing. <laughs> so the guy said, if you, again, okay, if you, if you know, 12 bands or 14 bands that will let us use their stuff for yeah. very little money, uh, go, uh, go ahead. And, and you know, you know what, what came of it it's such a good one it's such a good soundtrack we had yeah. so many wonderful artists very generously agreed to let us use their beautiful songs for yeah an extremely small amount of money yeah it's awesome and so those are the moments that are that are really rewarding yeah and that's again having more uh input and um integrity into the process and freedom people and the freedom. freedom to just do it yeah to not have your collaborators your colleagues go nah nah it's stupid or nah it would never work or we could never afford it or instead of giving you a list of reasons why it wouldn't work the answer is sounds great if you can make it happen yeah, yeah. so if you're willing to take on the responsibility yourself in our in our creative world the opportunities yeah. are there and that is very rare yeah it's amazing um I, w I want to backtrack a little here just to... Please, because uh, I there, still have an so answer to your to question. There's, there's I so still have an answer to your question. There, well, there's also, there's just like so, there's so much with, with your life um, that is like, de it's uh, rich. There's so much richness that to mine oh, uh, to talk about. Thank and you. There's like... So it, before we start, I was like, well, there, because there's so much and there, and just... and. There are other uh, interviews with you. There are many interviews. So people can get, be like, okay, you want to hear more about, say, your time doing uh, Meteorite Men, award-winning show <laughs> on, on TV and Discovery Channel. You, this is this is another, another world that, um, although I, yeah, I want to spend time doing that. Um, I told you before the show, I was like, Jeff, how much can we talk about your time with Spiegelman and the incarnation of the Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> as much as you like. And as be, much and, time as you like. And to be say, because um, I was telling you a little bit before, but really how much Garbage Pail Kids affected my upbringing and I think launching me into counterculture, and into that into that world. Really? Do it, tell. It really it, it's really interesting. I mean, I have a I have a nice little collection back in New Jersey at my mom's house. I keep it there. I don't know why I don't have it in Tucson, but I, it's like a precious, you know, hundreds of Garbage Pail Kids, some of the original series, and um, and I love them. Bunch of my friends, we talk about them. We uh, we're very uh, we're very influenced by them. You know, it's because probably the the 
the age I was growing up in the 80s as a kid, seeing these cards come out. I remember going to buy the cards at the the drugstore or 7-Eleven suburb, New Jersey suburbs, and and seeing these grotesque images and characters <laughs> that were so clever and uh, and so disgusting. And, you know, now I like, I'll show my mother when I go visit, I'm like, yeah, look at these. And she really like, th- it was the first time she actually like really looked at them <laughs> like two summers ago when we were visiting. And she's like, I let you get these. Uh, I let you buy these. And I was like, yeah. And, 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 um, and just seeing how clever, how disgusting, how kind of like, you know, counter counterculture they were up against authority, you know, in so many, in so many ways. And so I would, I would love to hear your, uh, your experience and, and entryway into that. And knowing that, you know, we were here, you are coming to the States, you have the time you worked with Will Eisner, studied with Will Eisner, and then Spiegelman. I mean, like, just even that, two of the greats. Um, <laughs> and Harvey Kurtzman. And Kurt- <laughs> I mean, and my gosh. oldest friend is the author of Sandman. How did I? How did yeah, I? Yeah, you have so every, lucky. you have these like people that you've been surrounded with and have had intimate connection and work with together in creation with like the biggest names in comics in the history of comic books and graphic novels. It's like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when Zaphod Beeblebrock says, hey, I can't help it if I'm lucky. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I did anything to warrant any of it. Well, I did work hard and I did. did. Man, when I make up my mind to do something, there is no stopping me. So yeah. I, w- I, w- I will... T- gladly tell you the story. And I will start by finishing the question that you already asked me. Sure. So so when I was 19, I decided to move to the States. And my parents uh, said very generously, they were beautiful people. They would help me with college. I'd spent some time in Massachusetts when I was growing up. I loved Cape Cod. I loved Boston. So I decided to go to university in Boston. And I love Boston. I, I, I made a bit of a mistake. I, I went to a very large university. It, it didn't really suit me. It, it was very exciting. That's where I met Latch, mm. the, the famous counterculture icon, uh, inventor of anti-folk and, and great songwriter and stand-up comic and BBC Radio Four Star, who's who's been one of my best friends since I, I met him in the early 80s and contributed to a number of songs to soundtrack to Revenge of Zoe, oh, including so the the smoke and end title theme, Human Boy, which was just That's a awesome. great, great song produced by the great Richard Barone of, of the Bongos, amazing oh. producer. So so I went to Boston and I I was doing liberal arts, which is the what people who don't know what they want to do with their lives do, I guess, <laughs> yeah. to supplicate their parents, I suppose. I can't really explain it. I was very keen. Well, I was singing the praises of the States earlier. When you've grown up in London in the very bleak 70s, it's gray, it's rainy, it's crowded, it's expensive, it's dour. There was a lot of unemployment in London. We lived through the through the coal miner strikes. There were there were there were blackouts with this very, I would use the word oppressive conservative government. A lot of London was boarded up. It was pretty bleak. And you it was very gray. I remember it being gray and everybody wearing gray suits. And everybody sitting in silence on the train and being very much the same, a bit like a Kraftwerk video. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean that I love Kraftwerk. I mean, like I'm thinking 
the association I'm making is probably the we are the robots mm. thing. And it's, it's manners. I mean, English are very well behaved. They, they sit quietly on the train and go to work and read the paper and bowl their hats and all mm-hmm. of that. When I, this is the era when I was a child. So, so I moved to the state. I decided to move to the States. It was very exciting. And I, I did one year university in Boston. It, it wasn't really a very good fit, but I had a fantastic design teacher. I took a very interesting semantics of design class just because it seemed like it'd be a good idea at the time. And I had a very good teacher and he took me aside towards the end of the class and he said, you could make a living doing this. And it had never occurred to me that graphic art was a, a possibility for me. And i had been an artist, wanted to be an artist, kid artist since I was a child, always drawing crayons, painting, uh, loved the arts. The one of the one saving grace, or one of the few saving graces of my very strict British school was I had, I had some wonderful art teachers who taught me. I learned how to use a darkroom when I was 13. Mm. I, I, I learned stop motion animation when I was 12, 12 or 13. I had marvelous art teachers. So, so the, the seed was planted by my design teacher in, in, at the School of Fine Arts in Boston. But Latch and I were, we were headed for rock and roll. So we left Boston, we moved to New York, and we started a band called Proper Id. And this was 1981. So the punk scene in New York was very much alive and well in yeah. 1981. I'm yeah. pleased to report. And being a being a punk fanatic and, and having seen the Ramones and Blondie and all, many of these American bands, imagine the thrill. The first time I went to CBGB's was to play there, oh. not to see a band. We went to play at CBGB's in 81. And there's Hilly Crystal, and there's that famous stage and the graffiti all over the place. Yeah. So, so I'm living in New York and lived in Rockland County with with the band. We all lived together in a in a somewhat ramshackle house. This would be a great film, and I I don't know how much we can talk about this, but but as you know, <laughs> Cliff Campbell and I are yeah are are working on a, a screenplay. Well, Cliff's writing the screenplay, but. But the story, we came up with a story between us. We wanted to do a really authentic rock and roll film, not a rags to riches star is born story, a film about what it's really like to be in an indie band Mm. and the, the, the humor and the excitement and the crazy things that happen. I'm, I'm not talking about rock and roll debauchery lifestyle. I'm not talking about throwing televisions out of windows and the things that you've all seen that you think of the who doing the, the camaraderie, the, the, the funness, the strangeness, the wackiness of being in a, in an up and coming band on the road. Yeah. It's very exciting. And I've just never really seen it done. Right. I would say the commitments is one of the films that's, that's closest for me to what Mm. the band experience is like. Yeah. Yeah, great, really great film, which is a bit of an inspiration for us. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. So, so I'm living in New York. So we do a few, do a few years with this band, and I've been in love with comics since I was a kid. I suppose I read my first comic book when I was about six, six or seven. And American comics were very scarce in England. You couldn't go to the store and buy them. They weren't regularly imported. Hmm. So when I met Neil, when we were 10 and he was massively into American comics, he was a DC fan. 
and I was a Marvel fan. Uh-huh. And he exposed me to a lot of things that I, I was unfamiliar with. Yeah. Like Robert E. Howard turned me on to the Conan stories and oh, wow. Robert Heinlein. I don't think I'd read Heinlein until I met Neil and and oh. and weird stuff like Robert Shackley Vonnegut. Of course, he was always into weird. I, I don't, it explains a lot when you think that he's reading Vonnegut and Heinlein and Philip Dick <laughs> at age 11. <laughs> these books early. are not designed for an 11-year-old. <laughs> anyway, yeah. it, it, it's, it explains why he's why he has such great breadth and, mm-hmm. and depth as a writer and partly explains it. Anyway, yeah. we, we haven't really talked about this, but comics have always been a part of my life. I love comic books. I, was, I wanted to be a cartoonist, but I got sidetracked by rock and roll. 1983, living in New York, my girlfriend at the time, whose name was Woozy, for real, <laughs> asked me if I would come oh. see her art show. And she's a student at School of Visual Arts on East 23rd Street in New York. And I go, oh, I don't really want to go. I don't, I, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to set foot in school, in a school again, I think is what I said to her in a very snooty <laughs> way. But she convinced me. She goes, oh, it's not like other schools. It's fun. You'll like it. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's very punk. So, so I go to her show one evening and it's 23rd Street between 2nd Avenue and 3rd Avenue. And to, to get into the school, there's just a little white wooden door. It doesn't have the grand facade that it does now. There's just this little wooden door, a single door with a little handle that bangs. So I open the door, I go in and start walking around. And this is a fairly small school populated by a lot of really eccentric characters. This is New York in the early 80s. And one of the first things that I see is, is painted on one of the walls, big, had been painted with a house brush is I am an American artist and I have no guilt, Paddy Smith. <laughs> and I stood there and looked at it and I go, this is the place. <laughs> this is for me. Like much like when I saw the punk girls in front, yeah. in front of the theater in, in London, I go, this is for me. Yeah. These are my people. Yeah. So I enjoyed the show. I pick up a prospectus and I, I read it on the way on my long subway ride, I was living in Washington Heights in a very dodgy neighborhood at the time in uh, Northwest Manhattan, right in the hundred fifties <laughs> on Riverside. It's quite rough. Yeah. So I take the prospectus and I go, ah, whatever. I'll just look through it. So I open it. And my first, the first thing that astonishes me is there's a cartooning department. And I, <laughs> I went, wow. you can go to school for comic books. <laughs> That can't be real. It's an actual degree program. There is a small but thriving cartooning department. So I go and look at the faculty. Here's who's on the faculty. Will Eisner, creator of the spirit, the father of modern comics, one of the greatest comic artists of all time. Harvey Kurtzman, the great innovator, creator of Mad Magazine and and Help and and, uh, so many other... uh, just an amazing innovator. Yeah. Art Spiegelman, who I knew because he was a 60, had been a 60s underground cartoonist in San, the San Francisco scene. This was pre, Mouse wasn't out in the mainstream yet. Oh. And Joe Orlando, who's DC Comics. Those, uh, those were the, I guess, the big four at, at the time. And I just was incredulous. <laughs> this would be, it would be like saying, 
okay, well, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to go to, I want to go to film school. Oh, there's this little film school in New York, and who's teaching there? Uh, George Lucas, Spielberg, Clint Eastwood, John Ford <laughs> would be the faculty. Yeah, it's that. I mean, it's that level. Oh. These are some of the 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 absolute giants in the yeah. comic industry. And Will was in his eighties then, yeah. and still very active and vibrant and. Uh, very fit, really alert, sharp as anything. Brilliant mm. man, very nice man. Yeah. So, so I enrolled. I called my parents and I said, "I'm going to art school." And my story is the exact opposite of every other story you've ever heard. So, parents always go, "Art school—that's for malingers and 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 lazy. You can't go to art school. What a waste of time." My parents had always wanted me to go to art school. They didn't want me to be a, in a punk band. They wanted me to go to art school. Yeah. So they were as happy as could be. So I started in the fall of 83 and you had to take foundation year class, which you took with the same group of about 23, 24 students. And I really didn't want to do that. I was very driven. I'm going to be a cartoonist. I must study with Eisner, Kurtzman, Spiegelman. I don't want to spend a year on the foundation class, but that, but that was it. You had to do it. And it was so yeah. great. Yeah. We, we did sculpture, uh, painting, figure drawing, yeah. uh, graphic communication, photography. It was a bit of everything, art history. And it's fascinating how there are so many people like me who come in, I'm going to be a sculptor, I'm going to be a painter, I'm going to be the next Diane Arbus, I'm going to be a great photographer. I'd say between a third and a half of the people I started with changed yeah. their medium during yeah. foundation year. Some people would go, Photography, I'm not interested in photography anymore. I could be a sculptor. I want to be a sculptor. <laughs> Though when you're you're exposed to things, yeah. your, your, your view can change. Anyway, after foundation year, I get to really engage with, with the comics. And I studied with Will Eisner for three years mm. and, and Harvey Kurtzman for one year. And and I became quite quite good friends with Harvey. Yeah. And and uh, saw him socially after school and art Spiegelman and art taught a, a class called language of the comics. And it was Fridays from six until nine wow. PM. Oh, wow. So <laughs> let me tell you, I was carrying 21 credits and I was working two part-time jobs and I was also editing the school cartooning magazine. <laughs> oh. So, if you see a caricature of me from that era, I probably have a cup of coffee in each hand. <laughs> and I lived in Washington Heights and it was over an hour each way to oh commute to school. Wow. So I was really, I was really battered. I mean, talk about being driven and focused. I was all about the art. I was yeah. all about comics. Okay, I'm gonna be a cartoonist, going to the comics industry. Yeah. So I really wanted to take Spiegelman's class, but I thought Friday, 6 p.m. Friday, I'm going to be toast by 6 p.m. Friday. But I, I did it anyway. I, wow. I, I, I have to do it. It is. It was the best class I've ever taken in my life in any medium, any discipline, any situation. Spiegelman is so brilliant. His insight into the semantics of comics when you hear him lecture about comics, I had this exact experience. I felt like I said to myself, I've never really seen comics before. 
I didn't really understand what's going on in comics. So we spent a whole class on George Harriman and Crazy Cat. We spent a whole class on Chester Gould and Dick Tracy. And, and Spiegelman would put, he'd bring in this big stack of slides, boxes of slides, and, and d- dig into the structure and the meaning of, of comics. I wish I had the whole thing. I wish I had the whole thing on tape wow. and I could, I could revisit it because yeah. it was so illuminating. And I went into that class as a superhero guy wearing a Batman t-shirt. And one time Art actually made me, I came to class wearing a Batman t-shirt. He made me cover it up in class. <laughs> he was very strict. He was wow. a very strict teacher. And because his time was valuable, he should have been strict. Yeah. And I, I ended that class as a, a avid devotee and supporter of independent comics and co- any, any comics that are not superhero comics. Yeah. When my eyes were open, my eyes were fully opened by this experience. So I volunteer, I would do everything extra at school. It was the only time in my life I did extra. I volunteered to run his slide projector during mm-hmm. the class. So mm-hmm. I stood on this high stool, which was lucky because I was so tired by 7 p.m. on Friday. <laughs> I was perched up on this high wooden stool and he and he'd talk about be talking about George Harriman and the architecture of the comic book strip and how it's the first time characters had come out of the panels and interacted with things that were going on elsewhere and had this, this relationship with the viewer. And and then he'd go next slide. I changed the slide. So that's how I got to know him for first was as a student Mm -hmm. and and working the slide projector. And I was very much in awe of of him. He's quite intense and utterly brilliant. And I wanted to talk with him more afterwards. I wanted to talk more, but he'd 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 blaze into class with his with his black hair and and people still smoked then. Wow. He was a smoker and in he'd pr- probably come in with a cigarette in his mouth. You're allowed to smoke in class then. Can you imagine? It seems so ludicrous now that we would smoke in class. I'd sit there and smoke. I was a smoker. Smoke, drink coffee, coffee, smoke, smoke, watch Art Spiegelman's amazing lecture and don't fall asleep. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. It's Friday night. Anyway, I wanted to talk with him more after class, but he would just blaze off. He, he, I learned later that he was going back to raw books and graphics and so on. He, he was working on mouse and a million other things. So after I graduated from art school, which I did, I did a four-year course essentially in three years. And I was so driven. And one day I get a phone call, a phone call from with from a, a woman i knew who she was but i hadn't met her yet with a strong french ac- french accent she called me at home she introduced herself as francoise mouly spiegelman the publisher of raw magazine and she said i need an associate editor at raw magazine and you were recommended by harvey kurtzman huh. so they were great friends and admirers of harvey and, and could called harvey and said do you have a student? Do you have a, a good, hardworking student that you think would be good, would be a good fit for us at Raw Magazine? And so he recommended me. Well, so, well, Jeff, it was the day <laughs> that school had ended, if I remember correctly. It was Friday. And I was really looking forward to years of rest <laughs> after my three years of 21 credits and two part time jobs. And 
Francois called and I was so thrilled. I go, well, this is my, this is my big break. This is my entry into, into the, into the big time. She is the publisher and designer of Raw Magazine. It's the number one avant-garde alternative comic book in the world. Mm. And I said, well, I'd love to come in for an interview. I'd, I'd be thrilled. Thank you. When, when do you need someone to start? Because I've just today finished school and I'm exhausted after three years of nonstop. And she goes, well, I, I need someone to start on Monday. <laughs> so I was so exhausted from everything that I'd been doing. My, my, one of my jobs was, a, was one of the was assistant manager of the radio station. And I was a DJ as well. So that was another high octane. Oh, man. Very active thing. I had a punk rock radio show, college radio. And on there at that college? or Yes. Yeah, WSBA. Okay. Rock 59 was the call <laughs> sign. Nice. So I, I, after some soul searching on the phone, I, I said to Francoise, I'm just, I'm so flattered and I absolutely love to do this, but I, I just can't. I'm just, I'm so worn out. I need to take some time off. I just can't start on Monday. I'm so sorry. If you don't find someone, maybe we can revisit in the future. And she goes, oh, I understand. Thank you for your time. And then I hung up and then I sat there in the kitchen, in Washington Heights, and I looked out of the window at the, the pigeon droppings and the de- falling apart, rusty, decrepit fire escape in the miserable kitchen with a... Stiff little fingers poster glued onto the wall. And I go, What are you out of your mind? And I called her right back and I said, I'm sorry, I take back what I just said. Yes, I would love to come for an interview on Monday. And, yeah. and she said, Well, I'm I'm very impressed by your enthusiasm. Yeah. So I went for an interview and I got the job and I, I worked there for late uh, in the late 80s, about two and a half years, I think. So very closely with Francoise, who is an absolutely brilliant designer yeah and is now the art director for the new yorker she's done a great deal to i was gonna say promote the arts but that just sounds so ordinary she has brought taste to the masses Mm -hmm. she has introduced america or new york or much of the world to great artists that they they didn't know yeah previously like charles burns and and Kaz and and Suko and so many of the artists that they've published, including art. So while Francoise and I were producing Raw magazine, she did most of the the bulk of the design, and and I assisted her with uh, design as like junior design and production. Yeah. So Art was working on Mouse, the which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize at this time, and he would be upstairs in in his studio working <laughs> on Mouse, and and the original Mouse was published as little booklets that were inserted into Raw Magazine. And I, I can't I can't compliment either of them enough on their devotion to, to, the, to the work. They just work every day, like yeah. they were in an office. They fixed yeah. hours, m- meticulous with great care. And... They were finally getting to the garbage pill kids story. Now, what a preamble that was! <laughs> well, it's amazing. So- this is amazing, though. Hearing about it, it's such a, it's so vivid seeing all this. Oh, thank you. Really. Well, and it was New York in the eighties, yeah. and they had this amazing building in Soho on a cobbled street, and and Soho was becoming one of the art centers of America, or I suppose even the world. Then all these these important galleries were were yeah. opening up, and there were these beautiful cast iron buildings. There's a very unique architecture down there around Canal Street. And it's such a such a vibrant, unique 
neighborhood in New York. And one of one of my laments is that uh, America's becoming very homogenized. Mm. Many cities are the same. You could you could be in a, in a strip mall in in Los Angeles and it would be the same as a strip mall in Florida. You yeah. wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. But if you're in Soho in New York or 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 in Santa Fe or or in in a few I mean there are some or New Orleans there there's some mm-hmm. towns that have immense character still in in the states but if you're in Soho in New York you know it it's got these cobbled streets with these marvelous iron uh, these co- these iron columns it's called cast iron architecture in the late 1800s and early 1900s wow gosh big 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 industrial buildings with giant ceilings and they're perfect for artists' workspaces. That's why Soho became one of the hubs of, for arts in the States at that time because yeah. of the buildings. Yeah, Nobody wanted to live there. It was industrial type area and the rents were cheap. And as yeah. has happened time and time again, the artists find the interesting place. They make a scene there because they can afford it because nobody else wants it. It's a bit like the Mormons moving to Salt Lake City, they go, well, we can live here and not be bothered because nobody else wants to be here. (laughs) And so the artists find the place that's cheap and interesting and they make a scene and then they are later forced out when the the property speculators and the the investors and the chain stores go, oh, look, the artists have created a culture. This is a cool place. Let's go ruin it. That has (laughs) happened time and time again. Uh, I know. work in the States. Yeah. So... So in addition to publishing Raw Magazine and various other publishing projects they had and working on, on Mouse, Art Spiegelman was a consultant for Topps Bubblegum Company. Mm. And this was because when he was quite young, I think in his teens, if I remember correctly, Topps had given him a job. <clears throat> yeah. And so one of his one of his creations was Wacky Packs. He worked on, on Wacky Packs, the earlier bubblegum cards that were the send-up of of advertising. Oh, wow. Still okay. very, still very funny. Uh, very, uh, very cutting yeah. <laughs> and droll parodies of famous ad campaigns. And so as Art said to me, I was very interested in all of this because he is also, of course, and he's rooted in the counterculture. culture. Mm-hmm. So why is he working for this big bubblegum company? Well, he said they were very good to him. They gave him his first job and he had loyalty to them. And so he continued in, in those years when I was working for him and Francoise, he would go to, he would spend one day a week at Tops working on projects, brainstorming, coming up with things for them. And one of the things he came up with was garbage pail kids. So as you well know, garbage pail kids were, quite a sensation in the eighties. And yeah, I, I suppose the, the origin was, was perhaps to some degree, a send up of, of, of cabbage, the cabbage patch. Cabbage yeah. Patch. It was yeah. like a cutting, cutting, uh, like, you know, here's this craze that's sweeping people trampling each other to buy the cabbage patch kid in the toy store. And, and here's something that we're going to, you know, throw back at them. That's like disgusting, yes. <laughs> disgusting, uh, <laughs> Replication, yeah. And they have that, there's a similarity in the face, the, yes. the roundness of the face and the chubbiness of the cheeks. Oh, yeah. So so anyway, so the one, there's one day a week and Art's not in the office, he's, he's at Tops. And I was very amused by Garbage Pail Kids and periodically the new series would come out and they would have 
cool posters and things in the office. So he, so. Was, he was just going over there working on that specifically. He would come back and work at Raw and do and do his stuff. And yes. then, but he was going to Tops, and that was like separate. That's like that's yes. where the inception of Garbage Pail Kids was. I assume so. I mean, he may have come up with the idea at home, but he but he went every week and he he spent time uh, working on projects with them. He had he had a, a it's very honorable person and very yeah. very committed to his work, and he had this, as I understood it, a high degree of loyalty to Tops, and yeah, and he, something that he was was important to him. Yeah, so. My workspace at Raw headquarters was a giant, was a stripping table. So it was mm. a, a giant, giant wooden table with a glass top. And Francoise had acquired this from an old print shop. And it, it's where you would cut uh, uh, negatives for printing. Yeah. Where you would you would make up the, the, the negative plates for the printing process. And it had lights underneath. And it, it was the size of, I don't know, one and a half picnic tables. It was massive. Yeah. So it was always covered. There's loads of stuff on this table. This is my workspace. So I'm working on ads. I'm doing, uh, this was pre-digital age, of course. This was this was quite some years before desktop computers. So we did, we put together Raw Magazine by hand, based mm. up in mechanicals fashion. Yeah. So I have all these projects going on, so there's piles of books. And one of my jobs was to go through the slush pile of cartoonists who would send artwork to us and i had to write rejection letters sometimes to people i knew oh which was very awkward yeah uh, i didn't get to decide what went yes. in the magazine but i i did uh i did have to send yeah. bad news sometimes <laughs> to people i knew and admired which was very awkward because i'm a kid i'm in my 20s right i'm the junior person at raw <laughs> who am i to tell famous cartoonists who shall name remain nameless that we're sorry we're not going to publish your work it was very embarrassing yeah i was telling people who were much better artists than i was that we weren't going to publish their work it was awkward yeah. anyway that was one of my jobs so anyway one day i come into work and there the whole table has been cleared off just my usual piles of projects in progress are not on the table. And I go, oh, the table must have broken. I want, I wonder what's happened. And nobody was in the office. And I went over and, oh, no, the table's not completely clear. There is one thing on the table. And there is a single card. There is a single Garbage Pail Kid card on the table. Just that. Nothing else. This massive table. And the card is Def Jeff. <laughs> my spelling, G-E-O-F-F. -F. And as you well know, Def Jeff is a... Uh, somewhat fun, rambunctious-looking punk rock guy, and he's walking down the street with a boombox on his shoulder, wearing a leather jacket and sunglasses, as I always did in the <laughs> 80s. And his brains are being blown out of the side of his head and his teeth, and their nuts and bolts and everything uh, in there. So, <laughs> so that is the origin of Def Jeff. It was painted by John Pound, the, yeah. the brilliant illustrator. I'm, sh I'm sure you know. Yes. And so... With when the B side of that is audio Augie. Oh, audio Augie, correct. But and Def have you Jeff is better. Oh, definitely. <laughs> of course, he was the progenitor. Yeah, o audio Augie is just a spinoff. Yeah. So it's like the real Clash from London Calling era versus the Clash Mark II without Mick Jones. That's it. That's I mean, it. <laughs> it has merit, but yeah. in no way does it compare with the original. <laughs> And, and no, I don't mean to unintentionally compare myself to the Clash. So 
Have you seen the reissue of Def Jeff? No. Oh man, it's very cyberpunk. Yeah, there's a new there's a new version of Def Jeff, which came out last year, I believe. What? Yeah, and my friend Shield Bonnickson, who used to work at uh, at the comic book shop uh, where we where we shot Revenge of Zoe, who's a, who's a comic book expert and dealer, he worked on Love Song of William Shaw with us. He helped immensely with the filming as he when we built the comic book set for for CBDs for the second comic book store. For, yeah, for, um, for the Eric Schumacher comic book store, Shield brought a lot of the the boxes of comics and props and things that, that, that we used. Um, I should probably, I don't know if I should save this or you know, I probably just might as well mention it now. All so, right. well, so Neil Gaiman's Sandman leather jacket is in the movie. Really? So on the coat stand Ooh. in the, in the set, in the back, if you look closely, you will see a very cool leather jacket. And that is Neil's Sandman era jacket so that's one of about oh. a billion easter eggs oh that's a nice inside by easter for this love sure which will be released this year and so shield when he 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 was a, a production assistant uh, on the film and yeah. was there for filming all those days and he brought to show me the new def jeff card yeah. and i was very blown away by it it looked like it looks like I don't know. I would say it's not, but to describe it, it would, it would, it would, uh, illustrated by Jim Steranko or Bill Sinkiewicz from a concept by William Gibson. It's, it's what it looks like. <laughs> it's very dark and cyberpunky. It's absolutely great. Nice. So, and the shield gave me a, a copy and, and over the years, people have surprised me sometimes for my birthday, I'll get a, someone to go, Oh, look what I found. And I'll get a Def Jeff card. So I have quite a collection. Of oh my god! I, I remember I got one. We were hanging out. I got one. I had you sign it. Oh right! Oh, sign yes. it. It's all rubbish, Jeff. <laughs> um, so with, which I, you know, part of the thing too with with these cards and I just like you know, you are I literally you are the only living garbage pail kid person I know. <laughs> Me too. Come, well, you know, you are and. Maybe other people were inspired by and, you know, had that. But, like, I think it was – there was something about personally seeing your name on a card and being like, there is my name and that in relating to it and just having these, you know, sometimes a few times, a few of the cards being made. But um. – <laughs> So it was, it was one of the great uh, – oh. I don't know. I don't know if you could say it. I was so touched by that. And I also really loved the way – I'm sure it was Francoise presented that. So yeah. she didn't say, Oh, Jeff, we've done a funny thing. Art's come up with a card called Def Jeff, and we thought we'd get a kick out of it. She went to the trouble of clearing everything off my workspace. Yeah. And just and just leaving it there oh. for me. And then and we would get loads of promo garbage pill kid stuff from tops. And oh, so wow. uh, off hours, I go through all of them trying to find extra Def Jeffs <laughs> so I could give them to my friends. <laughs> and of course, now you can find them on eBay and it's, it's, yeah. it's fairly, I mean, it's possible to get one without buying the whole set. It is, but they're, they're huge now. And I, I was also saying before the show, how much my generation growing up in the eighties, it's like the things that are, 
the things that are worth a lot now are toys and items from that eight, you know, that time period that are now like, now that I'm a bigger kid, we, people that like me that want to go and buy the things that we don't have access, we didn't have anymore. And I was talking about this with someone just the like, um, collectibles and memorabilia from eras, you know, like that is the big thing now, the eighties, these, these toys, these items that, um, yeah, just because now it's like, okay, we're, we have, uh, the means to, to collect and, and buy the things that we miss, miss having as a kid. Isn't it interesting? And yes, it well. So it's the same for me, of course. So, so my era of being a little bit older than you would be things, say, from original Star Trek, original yeah. Lost in Space, yeah, and items, Major Matt Mason, that kind of thing. Some of those things in in very good to mint condition go for big money now. Yeah. And the irony of it is they were quite expensive when we were kids. Yeah. Oh, ask your parents, oh, can I have this Starship Enterprise model? And and then we would play with them and we would <laughs> we would crash them into the sun, which would be a basketball. Or <laughs> I love would it. Fly them down the stairs or whatever. Or sometimes I was a bit of a pyromaniac when I was a kid. I'd probably melt them or put rockets in them and try and actually launch them into space. <laughs> And so a lot of the things were destroyed. Yeah. And so now, yes, we go, okay, well, now we're semi-grown-ups and we yeah. have semi-respectable employment and maybe a little bit of disposable income. So I want that thing back. I want, yes. that, I want that toy back that I destroyed when I was a kid in yeah. condition. And you look on eBay and you go, how much? <laughs> I could almost go into real space for that much money with SpaceX. <laughs> or Virgin Galactic, actually. I'm yeah, a big Virgin, Virgin Galactic fan. That would be better. That would be better. It's it's interesting. Um, so the just to just because I know like you were there on the on the front end of of garbage pail kids. Did it seem like I just have one other question with it? Did it seem like a craze? Were you aware at the time? Um, being there, you know, you get this card, Def Jeff. Were you like, wow, this is really uh, how large garbage pail kids? became or or were. oh yeah okay oh it was definitely a thing it was yeah. craze is the word and that was even the word that we would use yeah then. so it, yes for sure it was a craze in the 80s and you would go into the little smoke shop at the corner and there would be a box of garbage bill kids bubble gum packs yeah there next to the cash register yeah and you would see Posters at comic book convention. They would be in comic book stores. It was definitely a, it was a high profile thing. It was a yeah. successful thing. Everybody knew what Garbage Pail Kids were. And so I, around that, my parents had come to visit while I was working at Raw and they went to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So I went up to visit them for a few days and I, they were, they'd rented a house and there was a bicycle, nice bike. And I, I cycled into town because there was a little comic book store there in Hyannis. And so I went in, I looked around, I, I, I probably bought a couple of comics. I just always want to be around comics. I like the vibe of comic book stores and <clears throat> comic book people, as you can tell from yeah. Revenge of Zoe and, oh, yeah. and William Shaw movies. And so, and then I went, I left and I was going to get on the, get on my bike and ride home. And there's two kids sitting out there on the stoop and they're trading garbage pill 
kids' carts, and they've each got a stack, and they go, oh, here, I want, oh, no, no, I need that one. They're arguing about the respective value of various cards, and they're trying to make a deal. And so they were maybe, I don't know, nine or ten, just old enough to be a little rude. Yeah. And so I said, hey, guys, Garbage Pail Kids fans, and and they look up and they, they say, what, what's it to you? Or, what do you care, mister? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I, 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 there's one of the garbage, do you know Def Jeff, the Garbage Pail Kid? And they go, of course, obviously, of course we do. <laughs> Kids are. And I go, that's based on me. And, and they go, get lost, weirdo. <laughs> and I said, no, no, really, I, I, work at, I, I work at Raw Magazine. I work for this famous cartoonist, Art Spiegelman, and he invented, he invented Garbage Pail Kids. And, and one of the boy, boys goes, he goes, we're not allowed to tell to, to, to strangers. And if you don't leave us alone, I'm going to tell my parents that we were bothered by a strange man who was lying to us. <laughs> I said, okay, um, I'm taking <laughs> off, but it's for real. So, yes, my story was not well received by the younger generation at the time. No, but now it's very respected. Well, and it. so related to that, my, yeah. so my my friend and co-worker, Beth Carrillo, who is the the president of Aerolite Meteorites, our, mm. our meteorite company, she's a very accomplished businesswoman and, and a, a colleague of mine for, for many years, so she's got a strong personality. She's a very confident person. And yeah. she's been in a lot of a lot of complex situations. Anyway, the Def Jeff story is told briefly on my IMDB page. So Beth used to do a lot of the PR for us. And, and I, I go into the office one day and she's got a strange look on her face. And, and she goes, I, I was looking at your IMDB page. And I go, yeah, what's wrong? And she goes, that story about about the garbage pill kids. Is that true? And I go, yeah, you know that story. And she goes, no, I don't. <laughs> and she goes, that you used to, you used to work for Art Spiegelman and he invented garbage pill kids. And, and I go, I go, yeah. And it's like, there's no color left in her face. She goes, you're a garbage pill kid. And I, I, it's a, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was done as kind of as a joke about, about me and my, my looks. And she was, and the only time in my life I've seen her speechless. <laughs> she goes, that's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. And I go, let me get this straight. So you've worked with me for many years. We've traveled. We've been around the country. You've met movie stars. You've met astronauts. You've done all these things. You've produced television. You've been on television. You worked on films. This is what impresses you? <laughs> and she goes, Garbage Pell Kids were the, were the greatest thing. I grew up on Garbage Pell Kids. I can't believe that you have this unique connection to Garbage Pell Kids. And I go, well... I'm glad I was finally able to find something that would impress you. Yeah. My work life. <laughs> it's isn't that wild though, and that's I think does speak to this thing I'm I'm getting at with like it's something that really left a mark on us, you know. And I maybe we're me and her are similar age or something, you know. That it's it really shaped us. It, it's it maybe is one of the something that was one of the most influential things for me growing up to where I'm at now. Really? That's so interesting. And it's, it's wild that it's, and yeah. for you, you were just doing it. You were just in it and, and working in these, with these masters of the craft. And, but then there's this place where you end up and it's like, you're just doing it. Right. And, and at the time, not realizing the effects it's having on these younger generations and what it, what it actually did. Which was a lot, and I, yeah. I'm realizing it more and more as I kind of go back, and sometimes when I revisit the 
the cards and just like you know talk to my friends about it and you know there's this there's a <laughs> there's a whole thing about the there's a live action movie which is horrific and there's you know <laughs> there's episodes and podcasts talking about that just because it's so like it's such a huge part of people's lives and i think one of the reasons for its success is it, so you there's there's a clearly a a great intelligence behind it. So mm-hmm. you've got the mind of Art Spiegelman. Yeah. They're very cutting. They're very sarcastic. Some mm-hmm. of them are quite gross, as yeah. as as you as you've said. But they're yeah. very incisive. They're insightful. They they are of their time in a very unique way. But then you combine that with the brilliant illustrations. Yeah. The quality of the paintings. I especially like John Pound. I especially yeah. like him as an illustrator. And they're, they're paintings. So, they're so good. They're such yeah. good paintings. You know, I once had the opportunity to buy the concept sketch. Oh, wow. Jeff. Oh, wow. And I was in one of my, <laughs> I need to de-stuff my life. I'm spending too much money on stupid things. Yeah. And it was it was, it was a few hundred dollars. I can't remember the details, yeah. but I had the opportunity to buy it. And I thought, no, nah, I don't need another thing. I'm going to put in a drawer and never get around to framing. And I could almost throw myself off the top of a high building now for not. I mean, if I was going to buy one thing, that is yeah. the one thing I should have bought. Yeah. I, I didn't, but. And, and there are, yeah. There are also like within those cards, there's some that are more iconic than others. Sure. And uh, I, I think Def Jeff is one of those, is one of those cards. You know, there's some Yay. of those, you see like Adam Bomb, which is maybe, that's maybe the most like famous, you know, he's sitting there with his head blowing up, Adam <laughs> yeah. Bomb. But but Def Jeff is, is one of the most iconic. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, in my opinion, I, I would say so. I think, um, yeah, from seeing them, a lot of them. <laughs> well, I, of course, cannot take any credit for it whatsoever. It is, is, is purely one of the many... Uh, things in my life to do with comics and art where I just happen to have been luckily associated with something that was really know, great. But you were working a real in, effort of my own. Yeah, I know, but you were there and it was something that influenced and again, just being a part of of the uh, movement, you know. Um, and I was playing in a very loud rock band yes. at that time. So that was, I believe, 1988, I think, was the year it came out. It and, you're, and here's the big question, I think, that we should ask. You're not deaf now. Well, this is the most <laughs> difficult thing to believe. I actually have acute hearing. I'm very noise sensitive. It's amazing. And I can hear, if if somebody coughs in in Albuquerque, I can I can hear it. <laughs> from here you would think i would have lost my hearing and especially playing in in proper ed in, in the new york bands oh. in the early 80s because we were a five-piece band we had two guitarists oh, and norman england uh, norman england and, and mark davison were two guitarists so norman is now a successful writer and translator he lives in tokyo he was a marshall stack guy so he played a flying v through a marshall stack oh. and mark played a a uh, Gibson SG. I don't remember what kind of amp he he had, but it was very loud. Yeah. And I was the way the band was set up, I was typically my my right side was facing Norman's Marshall stack yeah. for years. And quite early, I decided to start wearing earplugs. Oh, good rehearsal. for you. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think I'd be able to hear a damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean I played rock and roll for 
for how long was that? Uh, I can't even do math in my head. Over, let's say, over twenty years. Yeah, punk in London, Boston, in New York at loud clubs. Yeah, and went to an abundance of concerts. And as mentioned previously, likes to be down near the front and likes to feel the 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 sonic thump of the bass going through my rib cage oh yeah bass speakers yeah so i am astonished that i can still hear it's incredible yeah feeling the music yeah (laughs) um so i i just want to i'm conscious of our time and I, i again there's like there's so much more to talk about so we'll have to do another one and and also just knowing there's so much more to to uh to Jeffrey Notkin than uh, than we've we've even touched on here. You know, it's almost like some of the things we did early years. <laughs> yeah, well, we, years. I'd love to come back. We can do another one. Yeah, and we can. Uh, I, we, we talk about what happened after that. What well, the post punk years? We yeah, the post punk years, which are very rich with many many things. Like I said, we and I'll have you know in the in the notes, you know, all these connections to. Uh, you know this this award winning show, Meteorite Men. You're now president of space. <laughs> well, president emeritus. So I president so emeritus. I, I served two years as president of the National Space Society, which is the That's the world's preeminent uh, citizens advocacy group. It's a it's an international organization that was founded in the in the 1970s by by Werner von Braun, the, the famous rocket scientist. Yeah. Um, I have been a spaceflight advocate for, for much of my life, and I'm still on the board of governors. It's as close as we'll get to the Federation in right now. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. It, uh, although it looks like uh, the future is going to be more expanse than Star Trek. Uh, yeah. I, I think I know. with asteroid mining. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. No doubt becoming a real thing in, in our lifetimes. Um, so, we also didn't even get to uh, we in the, which in the beginning. So we'll just do like a revert, uh, reverse engineering here of where you're at right now these days. Because I have a few, I have three more questions that I've been asking every okay. every person. But but right now you are in. I am I am speaking to you from the delightful small town of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, which I love. There, I love this hot this springs is, haven. Yeah. Named yeah. one one named for uh, the town that decided to change their name from a bet for, or from a a game show of the same name, right? Is that how exactly, they, that's exactly that's exactly yeah. it? Yes. So the town was originally called Hot Springs, and there are there are wonderful natural hot springs yeah. here. So and good. yes, there was uh, there was a uh, a contest or or a challenge in the early 1950s for the of the host of the very famous show. That was called Truth or Consequences, and he said, "If a t- if a town in America changes its name to the name of the radio show Truth or Consequences, <laughs> I will go there and do a special show." <laughs> and so that is that is how it happened. Yeah, and he he did come here yeah. and do the show, and it is still commemorated every year. There is a fiesta it's amazing. that commemorates the show, and it's a. I'm a, I'm a bit embarrassed about this, but but I'll, I'll own up to this. So yeah, when when I was 
when I was younger, when I first visited, probably first visited here in the 90s, always liked this town. I had this very bizarre idea that <laughs> Truth or Consequences got its name because it was the point of no return for wagon trains going into the Southwest. I don't know where this <laughs> idea came from. And that this was the last place that you could get supplies and that it was it was Truth or Consequences. It was do or die <laughs> after and it just shows how easily we pick up misinformation or concoct something that's complete balderdash and has no relation to, to truth at all. But I, this is the idea I had stuck in my head. But no, it was Ralph Edwards. Yeah, it was uh, 1950. It was okay. in 1950, Ralph Edwards made, made the challenge. And do you know that he, so he did come here and he did, I think it was, it was a special anniversary show. And then every year for 50 years, he came back to Truth or Consequences on that same weekend what? To, to commemorate it. That we were talking about dedication to your That's, craft earlier. I was oh. so I, I'm so enthralled by that story that a media person who's very successful, the radio show and later became a television show. To come back one extra time would be a lot. Yeah. That's but to amazing. come back every year to show his friendship and solidarity for the town, I, I found that very moving. That's so sweet. And, and the opposite of the shallowness that is associated with a lot of media people. Yeah. Yeah, that is really, that's genuine. Yeah. Ugh. So I'm here, as you know, as we, we met in Tucson, I, I yeah. lived in Tucson for, for close to 20 years uh, after London and Boston and New York. And I really love Tucson. It's, it's, it's a great city. It was, it was great to me. But I moved, I left, I left the New York area in yeah. 2004, moved to Tucson. So 18 years I lived there. And at, at that time, it it was, well, it was an enormous move yeah. for me. It was enormous change for me. So I've gone from New York, one of the great metropolises in the world, to, to a city of about a half a million people, approximately, at the time. And it, it felt like I was moving to a small town then. Yeah. And one of the things that really drew me to Tucson was its quirkiness. Yeah. Really great art scene, great music scene, lots of marvelous little clubs, uh, many of which are now sadly gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's amazing how, how over time your perception of a thing can change. So in, in 2004, I get to Tucson, I go, this is a really quaint little city, a little mini city. Yeah. It's very... It's very wild west. It's very welcoming. It's very, I feel like I'm part of a community. You go downtown, you see the same people. And over time, I feel some of that has been lost. And Tucson's grown up. It's become very cosmopolitan. We've mm -hmm. got a very shiny new downtown. And I miss the old, I miss the wackiness of it. Yeah. So I decided to spend time in one of the wackiest towns I could find. And, and that is truth or consequences, population 6,000. Oh. So a town of 6,000, it's got 15 or 20 art galleries and its own little movie theater and great art scene and a yeah. little independent brewery. My, um, my, my baseline is in, in order for me to stay in a town – the minimum that it can have is a main street cinema and an indie bookshop. And, and, and we have, we have both of those. Oh, I love it. 
So I, I really wanted to, at this stage in my life, reconnect with my art roots and, yeah. and something that I, I absorbed that I learned or fully understood at raw from, from art and Francoise is the importance of the craft, the physicality of making things. Mm-hmm. And the first issue of Raw Magazine, it, it's a very large format magazine. It's larger than the old Life magazine. And in the 80s, color printing was very expensive. Yeah. And so the first issue of Raw is black and white, but there's color on the cover. And they made a little color panel, which they photocopied, color color copiers, and then they hand-pasted each one <laughs> wow. onto the cover of Raw Number One, and it's very desirable. It's a very valuable and collectible comic wow. now. And if there's one thing I've seen in art that in the art world that summed it all up for me, it's that we can't afford to print a color magazine, but we're going to make it color by hand gluing a color panel onto every cover. And to me, that says it all. And it's especially relevant in the digital age. Yes. Where everything is copyable and transmittable and bootleggable. And yeah. So the value for me and people of, who have a similar perception, so the value of, and I don't mean financial value, I mean the intrinsic, the, the emotional, the spiritual, creative value of handmade things increases. Mm-hmm. And I have returned to my interest in, in handmade things, which would include, by the way, Polaroid photography, mm-hmm. which is in, enjoying a resurgence, although it's not called polar, Polaroid anymore, but inst- instant photography. This mm-hmm. idea of the artifact, of there only being one of something, in, in well, we've passed the age of mechanical reproduction, yeah. uh, and that, that, marvelous art, that marvelous essay that you might know by Walter Benjamin life in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is a must for, for every artist. It's, it's, it's old, but still very relevant. But now we live in the age of digital reproduction mm-hmm. where we, yeah. most people don't even buy records anymore. Don't buy physical records. Anymore. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not lamenting. I'm not going, Oh, we live in the terrible digital. We live in the amazing digital world where right. I, something I imagined as a kid being able yeah. to watch almost any movie that yeah. you wanted to immediately yeah. through your television set. Yeah. So there's lots of good. There's also lots of bad. Yeah, and I know. And to me, needs to, there needs to be a balance in the force. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very well said. So, and I'm very. You're 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 a recording artist. You're an actor. You're a visual artist. I'm very interested in your take. Yeah, I I, I agree fully with you that we. I would love to see more handmade art and handmade crafts. And I think I think I. I am seeing more of that. People who are making um, uh, their their designs, they're releasing it, they're hand making things, whether that is woodworking or sculpture, and um, it is happening. And I would love more of that to happen. I think that it is. Um, I think it's really needed. And just again, the balance. Like we we have these tools in the digital realm. And they should remain as tools. We shouldn't be used by them. We should be using them carefully and and still being able to have a 
something that's you can touch. Like I really miss touching, and we've I know I've spoken with other people about like an album, you know, vinyl, which is coming back more, as which is nice. I, I see many more. I mean, that that's a good thing. I will say, like Tucson, there's like ten record stores now in town, so that's like that to me says a lot that there is a resurgence there. But being able to like have an album, or even as CDs, where I had more CDs growing up, that you'd hold it, you'd look at it, you'd just sit with it and like listen, and sometimes read the liner notes. And like, th- there's something about that. And we've, we've lost, we've lost listening through now just like tinny little speakers. You know, like we should be listening to things with nice, like, you know, <laughs> bigger speakers and just sit and listen. It's something about our attention span that I think is, uh, and we were talking a little bit about this. It's the, it's a dangers of, I call it Instagramification. <laughs> and, uh, we need to take breaks from that to really, uh, appreciate what human connection is, what real, um, what real, presence feel like you know and i'm so i'm yes i'm so glad you said that i know exactly what you mean by instagramification i Maybe still someone have... came up with that word but i yeah. <laughs> it hit great. me and i'm like yeah that's yeah. A... <laughs> i still have my original yamaha tower speakers that i bought in the 1980s in new yeah. york and i have trucked them around with me and while I love the convenience of my little tiny Bluetooth in-ear headphones, which sound really pretty good yeah. considering how teeny they are, and yeah. I sometimes forget that I, I'm wearing them. They're so light. That should not be allowed to completely supplant the experience of sitting cross-legged on the floor in mm-hmm. front of two big speakers, listening to, the listening to say, The Who. Mm-hmm. And it is a different experience when you hear that bass coming out. And I'm someone who I used to fanatically make compilation tapes. I was quite famous for my compilation cassettes. And so you had to cue the record up on the turntable, get it just right. It was (laughs) pre-scratching, but you would do that. And I was quite famous in my little subculture. Oh, Jeff makes really great compilation tapes. And I, I... Theme them, theme them. So, yeah. Latch, my former singer and contributor yeah. to our soundtracks, used to run a club in the East Village in the 80s called Chameleon. Oh. It was a little club on uh, East 6th Street. Very chic little club. I really liked it. And he said to me, he was bartender and, and manager of the club. And he said, Jeff, would you make me some? compilation tapes and i said it's very time consuming you know it's i might spend a whole day or two days on a compilation tape yeah on a 90 minute cassette 45 minutes on each side and you have to also time it because you can't cut the last song out at the no. end yeah but you want the last song you also don't want three minutes of blank space at the mm-hmm. end of the tape because you're going to yeah. flip it over so it takes a lot of skill to make yeah. a good compilation tape so so latch said no you don't have to make custom for me just make dupes of some of your best ones uh-huh. And I go, okay, what's in it for me? And he goes, I'll tell you what, you make you bring compilation tapes to the club and you will drink for free at the club. 
And I go, well, there's the best deal I ever heard. <laughs> so I get to go to a very chic little club in New York's East Village, drink for free and listen to my music <laughs> on the big speakers. <laughs> so what could be better than that? <laughs> and so when, when the iTunes experience arrived and well, that was that was an earlier generation. Now you can make playlists on Spotify, of course. Yeah. You can you can listen to all of your favorite music in through headphones that don't weigh anything through a phone that's smarter than the computers that we had when I was a kid anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. But should not be the only experience. Yeah. And it reminds me, you know this because you're a recording artist. When we used to mix our albums in the studio, you didn't just have the big massive, beautiful, wonderful monitors. Mm -hmm. Most recording studios would have the wonderful monitors and then they'd have medium little speakers sitting on top and then they'd have horrible little garbagey speakers sitting on top of that. And the yeah. first time I experienced this, I said to the engineer, why do you have those awful little 10, looks like $10 speakers that you get in the flea market at Canal Street? And he said, well, that's what most of the world listens to yes. their music through. Yes. Those are car speakers, those speakers from a car stereo. Yeah. Yeah, which is you, like cars are like the worst sound for yes. music. And, and if you can make it sound good through those little tinny speakers, imagine how good it's going to sound through the big floor monitors. Oh, man. Oh, right. That's, that's so true. Okay, so different. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, lessons to take away are don't supplant this. Don't supplant this. Your, your, your original like analog equipment with just the digital the digital craze going on and and just have a balance just have a balance of both do both but like it's we seem to be out of balance and we should be maybe having a little more well should be but maybe would feel good to have a little slower pace so we can just take things in because i know so many people that just race they're just racing through so much material it's like overload just to slow it down you take down you take less input in and you can really appreciate things that you're that's in front of you listening watching we have so much that we're just used now used to now um having everything at our disposal that it's it's it, to me it feels like it becomes less precious and it just uh kind of in a way homogenizes everything like it's not as special and i remember pre internet just everything was it felt more special it felt like we could have a even more i'd say more social media maybe the speed of things going in smartphones that's when it really kicked up exponentially so like again you can use those things but don't let it use you that's so, that's so well said so when i was a kid in england there were it was a big deal when the third television channel went online so yeah. prior to that we had bbc one and bbc two and everything would shut down by about i don't know 11 o'clock at night i think there was the 10 o'clock news and then maybe something and, and they go and we've seen you've seen them parody on monty pythons well uh, the bbc is now shutting down yeah. for the evening we wish you a good night and the screen yeah. would just go Broom! and that'd be the end of it there'd just be a white dot there going ee! yeah and and some people would be really stoned and they would still sit and just watch that <laughs> dot, but it wasn't very entertaining. So, but the point of this was, so when they showed Lawrence of Arabia or the longest day mm. on Saturday night, everybody watched it. Yeah. So we would, I'd go to school on Monday morning and everybody had now seen Lawrence of Arabia. 
So we all had a common frame of reference. We could all discuss the same thing. And I'm not, I'm not lobbying for less choice, but I'm, I'm pointing out the difference of the experience Mm -hmm. that. So every kid that I, every kid that I knew watched Monty Python's and Dr. Who everybody you couldn't exist and not watch Dr. Who and Monty Python's. And so we all had that in common. So when, when we, when we did Dalek sketches or when we, when we tried to mimic John Cleese doing the ministry of silly walks, everybody knew what it was and we could all join in and we had a shared experience through that. So now there's loads more choice. Mm -hmm. But we haven't all had that experience at the same time. We've had it yeah. in different parts in our life. And you're so right that there it's very easy to become distracted because mm-hmm. of the the choice. And I've caught myself fast forwarding through movies on Netflix. I go, oh, this bit's really boring. Yep. I'm just gonna fast forward. I go, no, don't do that. Yeah. Either watch the film or don't watch the film. Don't fast forward through it. Yeah. And this this perhaps a good way of illustrating this is another one of the most meaningful things that was ever said to me was in a bookshop in York in in England, one of the beautiful historic towns in York, uh, in England, one of my favorite towns was a Roman legionary fortress and has beautiful castles and it's famous for its used bookshops. Yeah. So I was there many years ago and I'm, I'm an avid reader and and book collector. And I, I was in this uh, one particular shop and I found this beautiful hardback book that was black and white photography of, of Egypt of of archaeological sites and artistic remains in in Egypt, just luscious black and white photographs. The text was all in French. And I looked at it and looked at it and go, I don't know, I really love the photographs, but that's in French. And I mean, I speak French reasonably well, but I don't know about reading an archaeological book French and I go, oh, what the heck, I'll buy it. So, <laughs> so I, I go up to the counter and there's there's a lovely old man there. The, what you would expect the proprietor of said shop to be, scholarly yeah. older gentleman with a bow tie and kind of eccentric hair. And he goes, ah, excellent choice. And and he goes, ah, uh, donc uh, vous, uh, vous parlez français, oui? You speak French? And, and I said, well, yeah, I, I speak French, but pretty rusty and my parents used to live in France. I mean, French is okay, but not really up to the standard of, of reading an archaeological text. And, and he goes, ah, oh, fear not. It will encourage you to read at the proper contemplative pace. Oh, nice. Oh, that's nice. And yeah. that always stayed with me. Let's yeah. not rush through everything to get to the next thing. Yeah. Because the thing that we're doing is the most important thing right now, hopefully. Yeah. And so I have slowed down. I used to, how many books a year can I read? As yeah. many as possible. No, I'd rather read half the books yeah. and fully absorb them. So yeah. I've become more selective. And I'm doing more reading now than I ever have in my life yeah. in, in, the, in a conscious effort to avoid the whirlwind of digital distraction. I love that. Uh, much of which is fantastic. Yeah. And especially for independent filmmakers, among mm-hmm. many other people, photographers, musicians, has given us so many opportunities, yeah. not just to, to create less expensively, but also the opportunity to, to distribute that work yeah. to a wider audience. So there's much, much good hath come of it. Yes. Yet we must be careful not to lose sight of the other 
non-digital things that are of equal importance at least well said well said thank you um so it's funny because we <laughs> we went on that roll, which was great, and I was like, "Oh, I remember there was three, the three. Oh rap, yes, yes, rapid, yes, yes. Okay. Rapid fire. I round. will focus. I will focus on on the questions. No, it's at good because this is where we were at, and I wanted to, we wanted to talk okay. get into this. Um, rapid fire. Three three last questions. First, favorite toy growing up. Favorite toy growing up. Ooh. I have to just go way back in time now. I was I was a rock hound as a kid. I was always out looking for rocks and trying to find things in the natural world. What was my favorite toy? I well, what comes to mind is, is Major Matt Mason. Oh. Wait, do you know that? I, I'm familiar with it. Okay, yeah. so he was a, a bit like a bit like GI Joe, but he was a spaceman. Yes, and it was an American toy. It was not very well known in England, but. But he he was about maybe eight inches high, and he there was an alien guy called Callisto that came with him, and there was just, you could get a yes. space station, a kind yeah. of a moon based space station. So I had all that stuff when I was about that's amazing seven or eight, I think. So so that's the first thing that came in. Oh, and I remember going to sleep falling asleep in my little bedroom in South London. And I had the space station on and it had a, well, the moon base and it had a purple light. Oh. And I've always loved the ambiance of, of rock clubs, of the colored light, yeah. especially before the event when it's quiet and you're getting set up and we're testing the lights and they're the colored lights on the stage. I've always loved that. There's a magical show a pre-show feeling yeah the the quietness of the space but the the beauty the beauty of the colored lights and it may come from that falling asleep with that oh. purple light for major matt mason reflected on the not reflected transmitting onto the oh, ceiling man. of me little london bedroom that's so sweet that's so sweet um favorite movie favorite movie of all time is hope and glory by written and directed by John Borman, the, the great British director who lives in Ireland. He's most famous for Deliverance, Excalibur. Yeah. Made, made some uh, real, real great films, big, big films. Hope and Glory is a an autobiographical film about his childhood during the Blitz in, in London in the early years of World War II. And it is an exquisite, beautiful, beautiful film. It's not particularly well known. It, it's I'm very fascinated by uh, autobiographical films by directors. Yeah. So that's one. Amarcord by Fellini is is another great one. Wawa by Richard E. Grant is is another great one. I love it when filmmakers tell their story. And yeah. Cinema Paradiso, it's based on a real. It's not strictly autobiographical, but yeah. but based on real experience and. Hope of Glory is a, a, a really magical film. I, I, I'm an enormous military history buff, particularly World War II, Battle of Britain, all of that. And a lot of, you could still see remnants from World War II in England when I was a kid. There yeah. were still a few bombed out houses in South London and some bomb sites that had never been, had never been developed or rebuilt. Wow. And so it, it's about this the young John Borman growing up in London while London is being bombed and how the war is seen as a 
as a strange alien playground through the eyes of children. And it's very wow. funny. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a comedy drama, but it is also a film in two parts. And the second half of the film is extremely different from the first half. And I, I won't say anything. I won't okay. spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But that is, that is, my, that is my favorite film of all time. Uh, also, Rams would be Blade Runner and yeah. The Longest Day would nice. be uh, right up there as well. <laughs> Um, favorite, so you have a choice, favorite music album of all time or current favorite album? Oh, wow. And I know you really need like a top 10. If yeah, I could easily do a top 10. Yeah. I will, so I'll go with The Clash, uh, my favorite album of all, my favorite album of all time, but I'll surprise you probably in saying that, so my, my, Clash Desert Island album would be From Here to Eternity, the live album. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah. Oh, did we? I, oh, I, I remember we did. That. And it's it's so good. That is an amazing live album. And it it's not just the performances, it's the engineering that went into that album because I think it's called from something like eight or ten different performances. Yeah. And not only did they seamlessly put it all together so that it sounds like one long concert. Yeah. But it's essentially chronological. So it starts with their earlier songs mm -hmm. and goes through the London Calling songs. And it has pretty much all of their best stuff on it. And I was at one of the concerts oh. that's on the on it. And I love the poster as well. I love the title. So it's so difficult because some of my favorite Clash songs are on The Clash, The Clash, the first album, and Give Them Enough Rope. And of course, yeah. London Calling. And there's a few great ones on Sandinista, but what a weird record! And yeah, and Combat Rock, I can totally live without. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't hate I it, but I don't need it. Straight to hell, though. Yeah, the, well, that's a, that's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, uh, absolute masterpiece. Oh so yeah, I would go with that. And what I'm listening to at the moment, I'm listening to a lot of ambient. I uh, nice. I love uh, uh, Loskill, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. L O S C I L, which is a okay. uh, uh, ambient artist and also Bing satellites to, uh, I listen to ambient music when I'm reading Nice, quiet, very quiet. Yeah. And, uh, let's, let me, how about this? I'll, I'll pull up, I'll pull up my current playlist. Yeah. And I'll read off the, I'll read off the first few artists. Okay. So, cause I still love playlists. Yes. All right. So here's my playlist. See the Lights, Simple Minds, Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, Tony Adams, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, Girl Who Lives on Heaven's Hill by, by Husker Du, oh, and Three Little Surfing Birds by Bobby Ramone. Have you discovered Bobby Ramone? No. I thought I hallucinated this, but this is real. It is a punk record, but it's Bob Marley's greatest hits, <laughs> as if done by the Ramones. What? And I know that sounds like it would be silly, but it's brilliant. And you, <laughs> you must listen to it. It yeah. is the most amazing thing I've heard this year other than Sparks. It's awesome. Other than the Sparks back catalog, which I, I deeply connected with after watching that Sparks documentary, which I cannot recommend highly enough. So good. I recommend it as well. Oh my gosh. Mr. Jeffrey Notkin, this has been a pleasure and an amazing time. Thank you, sir. Thank you for spending all this time and uh, can't wait to see you. Same. We got a, we, we got a movie coming out this year. We do. And that's I, I will. 
If yeah. your listeners don't know, I would just say that Bradford Trojan is, is one of the finest actors I, I've ever worked with. He, he's a great, great talent and, and a great musician. And nice. I, I have, uh, I bought several copies of your album, Meanwhile, which oh, I thanks. gave as gifts to friends, which thanks, I Jeff. absolutely love. And so uh, Bradford was one of the stars of Revenge of Zoe, our multi-award winning film that was released last year on on uh, Prime and Tubi and various yeah. other platforms. And we have, uh, we struggled through COVID with the sequel <laughs> to that film, uh, Love Song of William H. Shaw. Yeah. has been a heck of a journey. We were, we were three or four days away from finishing the film in, in, in March of 2020 when we, uh, oh, sorry, Mark. That March was it. Of, yeah, March. Yeah, yeah, March. <laughs> that's that's is what it that feels so weird already? because my head, is, my mind has been such a time blip. I'm like, I don't remember 2021. I remember 2020. It's weird. Yeah, the lost year. The lost year. That's that's the so, lost album. <laughs> yeah, but it's not a lost film. So no, in June of no last year, in June of 21, we oh. went we went back and we we did the last few. We shot the last few days. Oh. I, I know that this has gone long, but I must tell you one thing, and then yeah. and then then I'll I will let you go. I don't think you've seen this. I created a lot of artwork for the for the film. I'm the production designer for yeah. for Love Song of William H. Shaw, and we and an actor. We, yes, I have I have a, I have a supporting role. I have I have, a, I have a minor role, but uh, yeah. of, of a, a very efficient critical role. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm a very officious clerk in the in the comic book store, and uh, and got to to act alongside Eric Schumacher and Gia Gerardo, who are who are two real actors who I admire very much. To, we had we had we had some great scenes. So yeah. anyway, in addition to to being a, a part of the supporting cast, I, production designer for the film, and through through because of COVID, we lost the location where we were going to film Charlie's comics, which was a real comic book store in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And, and the owner, Charlie, who was a great supporter of our films decided to shut down. And so we lost, we lost our location and we, we tried many other avenues. And in the end, Marty Catola, fellow producer and one of the writer directors and I lobbied to build a set to build a comic. So we built a fake comic book store in a glorious space in Tucson, one tool Avenue, start building downtown Tucson created the whole set. And so we can't put Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Superman comics in this comic book store because we don't have the rights to use the likenesses. It's intellectual property. So everything that you see in the comic book store is either owner created comics that we did get permission for indie comics or fake comic book art that I created (laughs) and and posters and artwork. And and it was, it was hundreds of hours of work. Yeah. There's a. I made a poster. I don't think you've seen it. I, I'm a. I'm a Shakespeare fan, especially The Tempest. Mm. I, I love The Tempest, and I always wanted to do. A, I wanted to create a poster for The Tempest. So I made a fake poster for The Tempest graphic novel, written by William H. Shaw. <laughs> and that's that's Bradford's. That's that's Bradford's character, Billy Shaw in the film, the eccentric writer, screenplay writer. So it's a, it's a full color poster. It's on the wall. You'll see it. You'll see it when oh. you see the movie or see the stills. And there's a, there's a, a, a brass fish, a big brass angel fish 
that's blowing a storm and there's a little there's a little ship a little galleon that is it, it's being blown along but the bit that you'll really like is at the top it says william shakespeare star william shaw the tempest oh my gosh and there and there is a there's a quote from the tempest at the bottom oh. so i've i've been dying to tell you about that i, I love kept it forgetting so that is yeah. beautiful i can't wait to see it <laughs> i thought billy shaw would like getting co-billing with William Shakespeare. I, feel, I thought he yeah. would just go, yeah, well, that's that's accurate. Yeah, that's what he Billy Shaw he would. He would be chuffed by it. He'd just go, well, yeah, that's yeah. how I should be. Of course I'm Shakespeare. I'm right in the same league there. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. All right, my dear sir. Right. Well, thank you for spending so much time uh, with me and inviting me onto your show. Uh, yeah. I am I am, I am, am jazzed and humbled at the same time. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. And I, I wish you all good things. And uh, we will connect you again too. in the real world and uh, maybe at the premiere of, of Love Song of William H. Shaw. Till we which meet one again. way or another will one be released another, this year. One way or another, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you, get you, get you. <laughs> all right. Nice Blondie reference. <laughs> all right, my friend. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. Another drop in the bucket for humanity. <clears throat> drop in the bucket. That's a good saying, right? Drop in the bucket. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because there's a drop in the bucket. And you... Is that a good thing? Is that good to say that it's a drop in the bucket? Portion of the hole. Hmm. Well, that doesn't sound great. It sounds like it's like a, not a big deal, what we just did. Okay, that was not a drop in the bucket. That was... <clears throat> That was um, a splash in the puddle in the bucket. What about that? A puddle in the bucket. Let's just take the bucket out of the equation. There's no bucket. No more bucket. We don't even need to talk about the bucket. What that was was a really sweet time talking to my friend, Jeffrey Notkin. And I'm really happy that we got to do that because for one, one of the intentions I've I've had with the show is uh, being able to catch up with friends that I don't get to see often. And I haven't seen Jeff in quite a while. So this was a really a nice time to catch up. And, uh, you know, I always have a little bit of time we're hanging out and talking before and after the show. That's just for my ears only, me and the guests. That's, that's our, um, that's our little secret. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also like had uh, an idea in the beginning before the show is like, we're going to, this episode's going to be an hour and a half. That's it. And that's not it. It's a two and a half hours. So, you know, that's just what happens. Can't, can't stop it when we get going. I, it's, uh, there's just so much to talk about. And as I said, Jeff has so much more in his life, such a rich life. Please check out all, all his links to everything. And I'm just so happy we got to catch up. I hope that you are all happy, healthy, safe, and sound. May all of your dreams come true, except the ones where you have to go back and finish high school. All right, my friends, until next time. May, may all